0: Everybody, welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca.
1: And I'm Landon.
0: And we have one of our, I would say, favorite people on the planet. Wouldn't you say Landon? As in terms of people that we've interacted with, we have the amazing Jeff Pingree with us today. How are you today, Jeff?
2: I'm doing fine. I'm I'm trying to Process the
1: planet comment there. That's a big one to say.
0: <laughs> it is, but we mean it. We mean it. You know what I mean? We mean it. We absolutely do. And, so, and
1: he's coming uh, from the other side of the planet. Uh, he's I, thing, Exactly. So, yes, that's right.
0: He's in Spain and, and we're in Utah. So we have um, interacted with and interviewed uh, Jeff before. I've interviewed him on other platforms and I realized that whenever we do this, we kind of, we read a brief bio and then we kind of move on and talk. But today I want to give you guys the full impact of who our friend Jeff is because he's an incredibly interesting person. A very nice, wonderful person. So, um, we're going to have Landon read his bio, and then we will dive into our conversation.
1: Okay. So, Jeff Pingry is an Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker. That's the big one the the Emmy Award. Uh, that's yeah. that's huge. A photographer, a writer, and professor of cinema studies at Oberlin College. He earned both a master's and doctorate in English and American literature and film studies at the University of Chicago and worked in public television in Washington, D.C., where he also directed Catholic University's program in media studies and George Washington's University's Institute for Documentary Filmmaking. His film work has been broadcast on venues, including PBS and Discovery. His photography, photography received National Geographic's 2008 World in Focus Grand Prize. That, that's huge, a National Geographic photographic grand prize. Uh, that, exactly. That, that, That shows some talent, and has been published widely in magazines and newspapers, including National Geographic Traveler, the New York Times, and the International Herald Tribune. He co-edited New Media, 1740 to 1914, uh, published by MIT, a collection of scholarly essays, has authored scholarly articles on documentary and Spanish cinema, has written about media, culture, and politics for the New York Times, the International Herald Tribune, the Los Angeles Times, Wired, The Nation, The Economist, The American Prospect, Ms. Magazine, uh, Sinasti, and National Geographic Traveler, among others, and has worked as a correspondent in Spain for both Time and Christian Science Monitor. Uh, Again, big ones. Uh, With colleague uh, Rian Brown, he founded and directs the Apollo Outreach Initiative, a media education and community outreach, outreach program housed in Oberlin's historic Apollo Theater. He also directs Storylands, a nonprofit organization that produces short independent documentary films about pressing social issues in order to promote education, encourage public dialogue, and facilitate political change. With Brown, he created Blue Desert Towards Antarctica, a multi channel video installation shot during a three week expedition to Antarctica. Is there anywhere you have not been? Grants from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the Ford Foundation, just films initiative. He and Brown completed the Emmy Award-winning documentary *The Foreigner's Home*, a feature-length documentary on the intellectual and artistic vision of Nobel laureate Toni Morrison. Um, And I've got here some uh, additional information. He's currently work. He is currently at work on a limited series documentary series on the history of race in his northeast ohio county
0: so And there it is. It took a little bit of time, but I wanted everybody to understand. And of course, how Landon and I connected with Jeff is uh, because we came across his incredible film, a documentary film, The Return of Elder Pingree, Memoir of a Departed Mormon. And most of you probably are familiar with that because we talked about it so much about six months ago. We had a premiere here in Salt Lake. Um, The documentary film details uh, experiences from his mission as he goes back to kind of deconstruct and reconstruct that experience. So we're going to link that in the show notes in case you have not come across it because that's an absolutely incredible film. So all that being said, welcome Jeff.
2: <laughs> thank you very much. I appreciate that long uh, setup, and I thank you for having me. I should just say one thing, and because I know how social media works, though I'm, I'm not on it much. Um, the Toni Morrison film, The Foreigner's Home, is, is its title. Isn't that did not win an Emmy? It's it's different thing. So I just don't want to connect that and have somebody come and say you're lying.
0: Anyway. Oh, yes. That's excellent. But anyway, bottom line is Jeff is an amazing person. And we're really, really excited that we get to sit down and talk and that he's able to take time. Like Landon said, he is in Madrid for the summer. So, and it looks wonderful. I'm looking out your window there. It just looks like a beautiful afternoon. So a little bit of a time difference. So so we want to just... Afternoon,
2: <laughs> afternoon here lasts till about 10 p.m. So, yeah. Oh.
0: Oh, what a life. What a life in the summer. That sounds amazing. It's still kind of raining and snowing here in Utah, isn't it? Yeah, it's been
1: raining. We're still waiting for the We're sun in June and it's still raining. It's uh, still.
0: So, <laughs> I was wearing a winter coat last night when I went to the store. I was like, what is happening? It's insane. So we all need to go to Spain. Oh my gosh. So we kind of wanted to start out. Um, Jeff was raised in the LDS church and it kind of took off from there. So we just kind of wanted to start out by you describing a little bit about your background. Background, how you were raised, where you were raised, and we'll just kind of let the conversation go from there.
2: That's, that's a big question to, to respond to. Um, it is a
0: big question. That's right. Tell us everything. How many interviewers do that, right? Let's just start out. there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I,
1: Not one I, detail.
2: <laughs> quite honestly, if you want to get a good history of my family, probably much better than my film would be to read my dad's obituary. And I'm saying this because he died two years ago, and I'm saying this because um, I come from a family of six children and my parents, we were an, an eight that was very close, you know, all together for 50 years. And, um, I think the obituary that I wrote with my brother, Greg, and my sister, my sister, Allison kind of is the, we had to kind of write the story of our family. And it's the longest obituary I've ever heard of, seen, come across. It is unbelievably long. And we just paid the money, I guess, because we figured <laughs> this is the story, um, My dad, whose name is Toby Pingree, by the way, and he'll he'll certainly come up in this conversation. So um, I guess I would say that because. My parents both come from Mormon families, um, you know, the kind where their relatives, at least along some lines, crossed the plains, came from Europe as members of the church to seek to be part of the Mormon community here moving west. And so I guess you'd say pioneer families. In that regard, my dad's grand, great-grandfather was George Q. Cannon, and, and my mom's uh, grandfather was Oscar Kirkham, who was a general authority and also an important figure in the Boy Scouts in the church, since we're going to get to controversial topics. <laughs> um, and so there, I say this because there was a real path established, and I, I heard things a lot growing up about the importance of honoring your family, from relatives, about, you know, like th- those relatives who've passed on are waiting for you and they expect the best from you and so I often had this sense as I grew up of all these old relatives sitting there watching me and of course when when I came of age sexually and and otherwise that became a far more disturbing thought for me to think that they were all watching me but um I my mom and dad were in their families they were the only children respectively who left Utah and not like they ran away, they rebelled, but because when they got married, we started moving. My dad and mom went and got a he got an MBA. Uh he was he was really young. He was grew up in Salt Lake, as my mom did. And he went to West High School and graduated at sixteen and then went to the U and did military air force and then went to a mission in Guatemala, same as mine, and then went to business school at Harvard, all when he was really young. And my they started having kids there. And so I was conceived in Cambridge, if we want to get to the beginning of it. And then my they moved back to Salt Lake where I was born. And then we moved around the country a lot, ending up in California when I was 13. And uh, from then on, they stayed there until they moved back to Utah when my dad retired. So for me, growing up was mostly California, though I have important chapters in earlier places. And yet they moved not that long after I left home. And so when I go home now, it's always to Salt Lake, my ancestral, family, parents, and college place, but never a place that I grew up living, ever, though people tend to assume it. So my familiarity with with Mormon culture, especially in Utah, was largely through the visits at holidays and summers when we came back to Salt Lake so my parents could visit our families, their families, but also, I mean, one of the reasons they moved back when my dad retired was because I think they each felt that they had not carried their load as their siblings had all those years when their parents were old and and their their parent, their fathers passed away. So when we when my parents moved back, both of their mothers were alive, and they were there for the last chapters of those of the my both my grandmothers' lives. Um, but I, I for me being in Utah, I, I draw a, two lines here. There's my immediate family: Toby, Phyllis, my parents, and then my siblings, Tim now a mission president in florida he's an optimo- uh, an otolaryngologist accuse me excuse me okay. a surgeon a ear nose and throat surgeon who's on a mission right now and the one member of the six children who's really devout in the church uh i'm second and i'm an identical twin to my brother greg who's a law professor in florida and allison comes right after that there are four kids born in three years um it was you know at the top you can see that's a, not an unusual mormon beginning She teaches at the Kennedy School at Harvard and lives in Cambridge. And then my brother, Matt, is a doctor, a pain specialist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. My youngest brother, Mark, who came kind of as the caboose, is an accountant in Northern California. He lives in Berkeley. Um, My parents, so my immediate family, the nuclear family, there's a lot to say there about the church, growing up in the church, our relationships through the church, but we are very close. We've always remained in contact and communication, communicating. And I, th- I think, you know, I I, without doubt say we have all have a high level of respect for, trust in, and treat each other very well. Um, that does not necessarily pertain when you go outside of that circle. So my relatives in Utah broadly construed, as I think about it, is a much bigger group of people and it's much more tapped into that sense of family history. I'm not saying my parents don't honor and love their histories. I just know that my parents... You know, I, I said this this morning to somebody, I, to Takrina actually. I, uh, when we were very small in family home evening, I remember becoming obsessed with this idea about going to jail. What it meant to go to prison. I don't. Know, maybe I was five. We lived in Boulder, Colorado, and so I remember family home evening saying, you know, what what happens when you go to jail? And we talked about it and and asked the question, well, what what would you do if I went to jail? And I just remember this very clearly, my my dad and my mom, they said very clearly to us when we were small, no matter what you do, you'll be welcome in our home, even if you go to jail. I think that's, you know, given what we know about how your basic life narratives are shaped in early childhood, uh, I think that was really important because even though it was very difficult and complicated when I and other members of my family kind of departed from the church and my dad died a, a devout practicing if liberal Mormon, uh, my mom's still a practicing Mormon. Um, but that ceased to be a real point of conflict. I think mainly because I never really wondered if I was gonna be sort of turned away from. That's not something that I ever had to wrestle with. And I know that that's that must that's a devastatingly hard thing to deal with.
1: So that's very
0: lucky because I think a lot of the rest of us raised in the church, even though it was never said, of course, there was this sense that it was conditional. There were things, especially turning away from the teachings in the church, that would cause great disappointment if not, I mean, we personally know people that were kicked out, cast out, you know, when they changed. So what a wonderful, your parents sound just amazing. That's wonderful. Just to say it doesn't matter. Your son There's nothing you can do. I love that. That explains a lot to me about you.
1: (laughs) I think Um, you you said your father actually even helped fund your, uh, return of elder Pingree movie is, is that? Absolutely. No, he was the
2: biggest biggest fan of it. He wanted his friends to see it. He was the driver when we were shooting in Salt Lake and he he did contribute. I, I mean, I think that it was his way of bonding with me in a lot of, in a fashion because, um, we could be working on something together that was about our missions to Guatemala and the church. And, and even though I was sort of in a very different position vis-a-vis the church than he was, he, he felt like, I, I think that he was his whole life never threatened or defensive about people who challenged church beliefs. He thought that was an, an invitation for conversation. Uh, you know, when, when we lived in Boulder and I was a little kid, same period we're talking about, uh, he was, he, he was really, really, unsettled by the church's policy on black men and the priesthood and he challenged it and he was on the high council at the time and he uh one of the members of the high council moved to have him to excommunicate it. um and uh, my dad was you know he was also on he was one of the he was a, he was the um what's the director the director of the sunstone foundation for a long time he was one of the first subscribers to dialogue he was a close friend of gene england which is how i initially came to know gene england my dad was a real liberal Mormon who, on the one hand, his experience in life, like my moms were just, it's in their bones to be Mormons because they grew up in the Salt Lake, in the Utah Valley, in the church. All their relatives and family members and neighbors were church leaders. I don't think they could really see another way. And that's not true of me, but my dad, that was one part of him. But the intellectual part, he loved anybody with questions about anything. And although he was a bishop multiple times and a stake pre- and a mission president, excuse me. Um, by the end of his life in the ward in Salt Lake, when they moved back, my both my parents have commented on how, how uninteresting and sad it is for them that there's so little diversity of opinion there. And I know that my dad, they, st- they shut him down. They wouldn't let him teach Sunday school at the end of his life. And I know the last testimony he gave was when the church made its last change about children of queer people. And he had been waiting and he stood up and just launched and said the church has finally corrected or wrong." It's really about time, and uh, you know, they. I'm sure most of the people in his ward just thought this isn't a, this is a crazy old dude. They want to shut down, but it was sad to me because he got he loved the community of being in the church, and that was really important to him. And yet, at, by the end of his life, the community there in Salt Lake, where he was from, uh, kind of turned. He was probably as I'd say his being pushed out of his ward as a someone who could speak and have a voice was probably the most traumatic exclusion in my immediate family of the church. And it was of him who's still a practicing Mormon. I know that's that broke his very ironic. It.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, so how many, did you mention that some of your siblings are still attending and faithful or have most of them?
2: Well, and I'm speaking now, so, I, you know, everyone should speak for themselves, but this is my yes. understanding. You know, that goes it's
0: yeah. I guess that's forward. true. Good point. Um,
2: just because I think if you ask different people, you might get a different take. But I, I, him
0: mm-hmm.
2: is a true believer. And in that sense, there's something different about us. I, I don't fully understand where he's coming from that, but I'm sure sure he doesn't fully understand where I'm coming from at from on on that. And um he's just, yeah, S- but I'm second Greg, Greg and I are both kind of had a similar departure from the church. My sister Allison, I, I don't believe based on my conversations with her that she believes a lot of it or is happy about a lot of it, but I but I think she needs to say that for herself. I think it's harder for people to guess that because she's the one female in our family and she's the least confrontational and provocative. And so uh, I think she. a lot of people believe about her what they want to. My dad believed that until his death. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think one of the things that came out, if, anyone, if you ever go and watch it's online, I think still the, the funeral service for my dad was on Zoom and from salt lake and we all spoke and it was in some ways later i realized it was all of us in some ways reckoning with him and the church and i know my brother matt for example regretted that he had never had a blunt conversation with my dad and told him that that he wasn't in the church anymore he was hiding it at the time um i don't think my dad believed that about allison and and again i'm not this is allison's we all have our own right to tell our story the way we want to and and I'm not trying to say Allison believes this and lies and says this. I'm just saying I sense a lot about what Allison thinks that may line up with things that I would say that she maybe has not said. I don't know, but, but you know, I could be educated on that and changed, but Allison should speak for herself. But, and then there's Matt, who's been a practicing Mormon, but only in recent years has come out effectively to his wife and children. And that's a, a point of deep struggle right now. And then Mark, the youngest is the, the least Mormon raised, he went um, with my parents when they went on a mission at age 11, but when he came back, not too long after when he was in college, he um, said nope, and he had his red name taken off the records of the church. I, think he, I believe he's the only one in our family to have done that. Um, which is, it's, you know, we can have our own conversation about what that means to have your name taken off and why people do or don't do it. Uh, yeah. But he has done that, so he has nothing to do with the church. And whereas the he's at the young end of the family, whereas the older kids... We were far more socialized and raised in part of big church communities. Mark was not.
1: Um, that's again, funny Mark you was, say that when you say that he was in the mission field when he was 11 years old. He was part of <laughs> in, living in the mission home. <laughs> He's the least but socialized. That's different.
0: That's different. than being oh, socialized is, in yeah, a yeah. ward family, yeah. you know, it's different. I it's think.
1: very different, especially when you're you're
2: taken there by not by your own choice. At 11, you're saying exactly. goodbye to your friends. I thought to my mom very recently admitted she she, she says this on multiple occasions one of the few regrets in her life is accepting that mission call. Really? Because because I think she feels that that she, again, mom, you'll have to speak for yourself. She feels that she kind of lost in some fundamental way a relationship with Matt and Mark, the two younger ones. Because Matt, who was in high school, came back and didn't stay in Ecuador, came back and spent the three years in high school at one of my uncle's houses. And that was a very complicated experience. My dad's brother's family. And my mom has always felt tremendous guilt about that and mark was down there but she said late, late recently she said i thought we were going to go with mark and that he was going to be happy to suddenly have us all to himself and that was not at all what he thought, and of course, in now hearing that, it's laughably naive to think that some <laughs> emergent teenager all he wants is to spend time is with his parents, right? But I want to
0: be with mom and dad nonstop. And 300
2: non-stop. missionaries, <laughs> right? And, and I think there, look, I think in fairness, Mark would say there was a lot that happened down there that was great for him. He became friends with the missionaries; they all loved him in the office. He made a lot of friends. He learned Spanish. He had friends at this international school. It wasn't just like oh, a horrible thing. But overall, it was very difficult. Uh, when my parents went down there. I was not long home from my mission, and I went down with them for for a chunk of the first year for the with the purpose of helping my mom and Mark learn Spanish. Um, and so I went down there with them and had a great time, played a lot of basketball, did other things, and helped them with that. And this was at the time when I was kind of moving out of the church, but I was still attending. Uh, it was the first time that i I ever confronted my dad and said, "I'm not going to church today." And he said, it kind of, you know, pushed him back. So it began there, but I was down there to help them. And so since I had just been in the mission field and, you know, lived in the office and done all of that, I, I was, you know, very fluent in both Spanish, but also in Mormon life and mission right. house office life. And so I did, and I just, I, I bring it up because I remember when I left at the end of that, that initial period of time, writing a note to Mark late at night, he was 11 sleeping in bed in the room. I shared with him. And I remember just one of, it was one of the hardest notes I've ever written because I knew I was leaving. And he was going to be alone, this 11-year-old kid, and didn't have support in the family. He had my parents, but I saw what their life was like. They were off doing the mission yeah. duties all the time. Yeah. And he was this American kid down there with, like, suddenly for three years with a huge question mark in front of him. And I know that would scare the crap out of him. So
1: um, anyway. So, Jeff, you, you left the church uh, soon after your mission, um, but it, it wasn't historical or doctrinal or was it what what was it that led you out
2: well i'd love to give you a great story of of courage and integrity and i prayed and realized this wasn't true and had to follow the truth and suffer for it Here, here's what i'd say is the most accurate honest version it is you know i grew up in a family that was mormon but also deeply loving and accepting that was committed to being Mormons and living that culture and and honoring all of the tradition and at the same time was never going to abuse me for whatever I believed. So in some ways, it's kind of like a kid who has a parent that's angry and screaming at him all the time. That's a hard childhood, but it's not hard to draw a boundary with that parent when you get a little older. Kids who have very close relationships with their parents, as we all did, it's harder sometimes to tease out the problems and to tease out ways the ways you've been shaped and to stand apart and it was very difficult you know in our family to confront each other and to express anger and just sort of you know fire it off and and especially when we were younger um i my mom and dad both came from families and i say this believe me i say sincerely they're the best parents i've ever met a lot of my friends say that of course a lot of people think that i'm just saying my parents are awesome parents but i would say. Again, being very blunt, I think they were much better parents, probably, than they were companions to each other early in their marriage. They, my mom, by their own admission, said we hadn't the slightest idea what the hell was going on when we got married. We were young and idiots, just doing what we thought was right, and we didn't know each other at all. And, you know, they worked on being compatible their whole lives. They had a, a both a great marriage and, a, and a, in some ways, a tough marriage. Um, I again, my, mad, my mom and dad, if they were listening to this, and my dad, if you're out there somewhere, you know, I don't know what they'd be thinking, me saying that. But I certainly never held back from telling them what I thought about their marriage. Not because I could judge it, but just to say, hey, I think you could get along a lot better if you did this, this, and this. Um, and this is not to say that they fought all the time. I'm just saying there was a, a thing between them that was unique. And they were very close, but they were also, they could have, my mom could boss my dad around. My dad could frustrate the hell out of my mom. And I I guess I just think as parents, though, it was easy for them to be really loving. And you said, Landon, in the beginning, or or you said, Rebecca, now I know something about you or understand the way you are, Jeff. I would say this, the, the way that my parents unconditionally loved us, which was their great contribution, absolutely is a huge, formative, foundational piece. And I've never met people who are loved that way, who don't have something that's like that. And I've never met people who are sort of cruelly denied it, who don't suffer some pretty profound damage because of it. And it's to just know kind of from the get-go that someone accepts and loves you. Um, but I, you know, I think my parents, to get back to the narrative, my parents, neither of them came from families who were very good at talking about difficult things, beliefs.
0: Um, that, that's a Mormon thing, I think. <laughs> yeah, no, ironically, it really is.
2: <laughs> it's very much a Mormon thing. And, and so when I was young, you know, again, we moved from, Boston, to New York, to Salt Lake, to Boulder, Colorado, to Ithaca, New York, to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and then to California. And through those places, we were tight with each other, but we were always moving. And um, I I remember when I was a kid, you know, I go back and look at the few journals I kept and all I ever wrote about was how sad I was. And at the time I didn't realize it, but when I was in graduate school and for the first time went and started seeing a therapist to talk about, you know, difficult things in my life, which we can get to later, but it's... um, I remember one of the first things that my therapist said was, well, I think when you were a kid, you might've been really struggling with some depression and some anxiety. And of course, at the time, I had no idea what to call that. But when you're a little kid, anything that makes you feel terrible, that isn't where you don't have someone helping you to explain what that is and why it isn't who you are, you internalize it and you put it on yourself. I was, again, an identical twin, which meant that I saw the world through the lens of, I share everything with this person. Isn't that great? yeah isn't it terrible yeah um everything's shared your identity is in question people are looking at you all the time trying to figure out who you are you this one or that one and not remembering and it's a built-in sense of rivalry that that my brother greg and i have struggled with our whole lives it's central to our conversation with each other about who we are Um, so i say this because i was pretty under a lot of pressure to perform you know we were achievers my dad live by the philosophy, you you know, there's always more, you have to always do your best, do your best, never complain. We get that, right? And um, that that has its, you know, good outcomes. I did a lot of accomplished things in my life, but boy, a lot of those accomplishments that you read on paper, underneath it was this very depressed, anxious, discouraged person who wasn't sure what, that he believed in anything and certainly didn't know how to find joy in any of those accomplishments. And so... Um, I I was an anxious and depressed kid, I think. Um, I think there's some depression in my family, especially on my mom's side, my grandmother, her mother, whom I loved and was very close to, but she was an incredibly difficult person, I think by any measure. Super intelligent, super accomplished, the child of a general authority who was never home. That says a lot about where her anger came from, I'm pretty sure. And um, she was just sort of like as difficult to deal with as my mom is easy to deal with. And I think you can kind of see the family... You know, the intergenerational negative to positive thing happening there. And um, but it was very difficult for my mom to, you know, she wants to make things good. She wants people to feel comfortable. She doesn't want conflict and confrontation. Um, My dad was a lot more comfortable with it, but he, too, didn't come from a family where you just talked about all that. So in that sense, they were both really trailblazers in their families, in having a family you know and all my dad used to joke, when do I get to stop paying for my kids going to college? We went to all went to school forever. We we never stopped. <laughs> and I, I don't say that as just a plus. There's a plus to it, but there's a lot of not plus to it. And right. I think you know we all were sort of felt encouraged to explore what we wanted, to pursue the life of the mind, and to not ever feel real danger or threat about taking the wrong step about what we believed. That's the grand picture, and it's there. Within that. It's very complicated to for anybody to say, I don't believe what you believe. I don't believe what this family's narrative is built on. I don't believe the thing that we've all shared all these years. Uh, now, the things that we've talked about. I don't believe the story that says we will be together when we die. Um, which is something I talked about with my dad a lot at the end of his life.
1: Um, which must so, have been difficult as close as you are to your father. very. To- yeah, very that, difficult. You know, yeah. Very obviously, difficult. you'd want to have that, but you still say, no matter how much I want it, I can't believe it. Can't believe
2: he, it. No. Of the six children, I was i was the one who got divorced. My, my sister got divorced, but remarried. And so for many, many years, I've been kind of single. And I'm also the one child who has no children. And so what does that mean? It's um, when my dad started to develop a lot of physical problems, when he hit 80, basically, so for the last seven or eight years of his life, um, anytime they needed more help, I was often the one who was there. So I ended up spending a disproportionate amount of time in Salt Lake with my parents. Right, and then I was there right through his death, it was the one there when, when he died and kind of had to arrange his funeral and do it on Zoom, um, which was, you know, and so th- those th- th- that time I spent with them, those last few years of his life were really meaningful and important to me. You know, I would never trade them. They're also really difficult because he was not himself at all. One of the things that happened with my dad when he's developed what, you know, is common in older people, he lost his executive function, he developed an aggressive form of Alzheimer's at the very end, but his tolerance and his ability to be curious and comfortable with other people's different opinions kind of diminished, and he became a little crankier and a little more reactionary, which surprised me, but again, at the, at his funeral, I commented and said, and I still believe that I don't think that was really a reflection of his his deepest beliefs. I think he was he was going through what people go through at that age which is you become you, you return to your earliest mm. anxieties and hang on because you're losing control of everything and his went to like money and simpler beliefs um but we had conversations at the end and I remember saying to him what is it that bothers you so much and he said I guess I, that I think you're kind of renouncing the family to leave the church because you won't be with us after this life and he'd never said that before oh, dear. yeah and I said well you know it's really hard dad that for people who love each other and are close to believe different stories about the whole eternal enterprise right whether it ends with me in the dirt and chemicals and atoms and all that which i think is true no matter what you believe or it ends there physically and then i'm you know launched into whether you take the mormon view that i totally dismiss which is of you know, uninteresting, boring white men walking around in suits in a lighted room or something. I don't know what it is. I've never <laughs> been, like. What could you do there? I
0: think you hit it on the head. Yeah, yeah I think that's girl, pretty much, the much
2: it. So. or even something more complex, which <laughs> I have to allow for. I'm not trying to just just that was that a joke. And and no matter how you slice it, I said, Dad, you believe that in a month or in a year or in six months when you're gone, it's just going to be a while, and then we'll hang out together. Yeah, I'm saying goodbye to you forever. And yes. so I'm not trying to say I got it worse than you, but I kind of do have it worse than you, yeah. given what I believe. And it's not it's not that I chose to believe what I do because I wanted to continue my teenage rebellion well into my adult life. Sure, I was a teenager and we all rebel. But anybody who thinks that leaving the church is a teen rebellion issue beyond a pretty circumscribed time period. That's just a lame excuse, because yeah. believe me, it would be, my life would be a lot easier if I just decided to stay, stay in the church. There were a lot. What well, didn't come with everything getting easy, you know, there was liberation for me, but it didn't make it easy with family, certainly not with extended family and with other friends that I lost. So um, th- that that difference of belief came into kind of a focus at the end of his life. And and one of the things that I'm most happy about, or glad for, or grateful for, really, is that I had all that time at the end, and I was able to kind of confront it. Like there was nothing unsettled between me and my dad when he died. And that is not true of everyone in my family. I, I see struggle. So Well, that's
0: a rare opportunity to be able to do that. I mean, that's unusual. Most people have regrets after there's a passing like that. And they're like, I wish I would have said, or I could have said, or that's amazing that you had that opportunity. That's incredible.
1: Interesting. So you left the church soon after your mission, but then you went on to BYU. How how did that yeah. uh, transpire? That uh,
0: era of your you life really is so fascinating. BYU is I... not
1: where you want to go.
0: <laughs>
1: well,
2: the way it went is, you know, again, large family, dad who after every report card sat each one of us down and had a conference and said, the only question that matters is, did you do your best? But at the same time would take us out to dinner and give – you know, my sister remembers the dinner we went out to where because she'd gotten the best grade, she got to order steak and we only got something lesser on the menu. <laughs> I got it, great. Great. <laughs> but my dad, that is the family he wow. came from. Everything was about you utilize yourself. We used to joke about in his later years that, you know, if he was in a bad mood one day, would say he isn't he's not fully utilized today. He hasn't fully utilized his time because he... You know, I saw this picture in my mind of him that I took of him. I used to go spinning with him at the Steiner Center in Salt Lake at five in the morning. And he spun well into his 80s. And I still remember one of the last times he did it. We were spinning outside on this deck out there and the class had gone home and he was still doing it. I took a picture of him alone on his bike, this old, you know, like hunched over figure. And he couldn't stop. He had to do something with his time. He had to. He, he didn't had no other way of understanding the world. Um, and that has been a real problem for me in my life, uh, because I feel the, the the weight and the pressure that I need to do that, or I feel guilty or ashamed. But I don't want to do that, and that's not the way to live. And, and you know, my, here's a good anecdote. It's my dad got up and worked out every day of his stinking life, and we all inherited that. And I've been a maniacal workout, athletic, sports person my whole life, and I loved I've loved a lot of that but this this thing that says you if you don't exercise you feel crappy you feel terrible about yourself yes. you know my dad's gone and he died in a massive decline of health all the things he lost all the things that mattered to him he couldn't walk he couldn't think and he couldn't read anymore that killed him and he became a different person. My mom has never exercised on a program a day of her life. She loves being active. She does stuff. She's 87 and crawling around on the floor, pulling pots and pans out of the cupboard still, making food, doing everything. I'm like, who do I want to be like, my mom or my dad? My dad beat himself into submission. And that's. I think that is literally something that happens. You know, I think that that workout mentality, there's never enough, you have to do more more more, no pain, no gain, is, a, is a, a very apt physical kind of metaphor of how Mormonism works on us emotionally, spiritually, psychologically. You just have to beat yourself into submission to shape yourself into what you're supposed to be. And then you stand there looking at this beautiful shape you've pounded out, this resume of all these accomplishments that you read at the start of this thing. And inside you feel like shit. You don't feel good about yourself. You don't enjoy anything that you have. And you say, how did I get to this point where people can walk around saying, wow, you're so accomplished, dude. You're so awesome. And you feel like, I don't know even know how to be happy. I don't even know how to choose what I want. I don't even know what I want and or how to know what I know what I want. I, it's really kind of a bummer. Right. It's a very good I,
0: I think you're never at rest in that way. When you described your father, it's a lot like my father. He and I think they're similar maybe ages. My dad is, you know, almost late, late 80s. He would do the same thing. He had an exercise bike in our home, but that wasn't enough just to be riding the bike. He had to put a lectern kind of attached to it so that he could read conference talks and study. That wasn't enough. He had to attach a battery to the back of the bike. So while he was writing, it would juice up this battery, you know, for the last days or whatever. We would have power on hand. I mean, you're absolutely right. That mentality well, I'm of surprised that he age, didn't
2: have, I'm surprised driven. he didn't have like somebody translating, doing a yeah. language lesson at the same time so he could.
0: Well, no, it probably, you know, that was, there was a microfilm reader on the side and he was doing genealogy. No, it was all like that. And very similar to your dad. My dad is still living. In fact, they're uh, celebrating their 60th wedding anniversary on Saturday. But the very same thing incredible decline in health, exactly what you described. Lost my dad has lost that too. And it's a very similar situation. And, you know, these driven people in the Mormon construct. There's just no end. There's no way to ever feel rest, right? There's no way, I think. So yeah, wow, I, that's so fascinating. I
1: definitely noticed the similarity because your dad also went to college at 16. Yep, uh, at
0: 16, and, very young, got his PhD by the time he was barely early 20. Yeah, he was a nuclear scientist. So similar kind of person. So interesting.
2: It, wow. It's fascinating because I think I think we're all realizing, at least I am, that you know, multitasking has a very toxic dimension to it. And certainly spiritual, multitasking is going wow. to come with price right wow. yeah
0: that is the phrase so, my goodness but then you ended up at byu
2: <laughs> well so okay so we're, we're doing this so we were in california we went to high school in northern california we i loved living there it's a great place lived in the east in the bay walnut creek bay area I grew up with this big ward of friends but we were out of utah it was just a fun place a lot of sports a lot of you know activities the stuff the church doesn't do anymore like road shows and basketball tournaments and you know dance festival and all that stuff and um when i went to college you know i did well in high school uh we all did quite well because again we were all pretty driven for that uh but i didn't really think i think i only applied to schools outside of byu because my dad was kind of like aren't you gonna apply to some ivy league schools or it's weird because I, I go back to that time in my life and I can't quite understand what I was thinking. And I, I think I wasn't thinking very much about college or what it meant. And so I only applied to, to BYU and then three, I think Harvard didn't, pray, Yale and Princeton, just almost out of a hat. And went through and did all the interviews and ended up going to BYU. Both Greg and I did because, well, Tim had gone there already and had a scholarship. Greg got the Kimball scholarship, which is the big one then, you know, named after the president yeah. of the church. And I got the next one after that that we can talk about that, but what that, you know, did to me as a twin, but, <laughs> oh, but basically yeah. we all, and I think Allison, I think got to Kimball as well. Anyway, so it was all scholarship. And I I think I'm probably looked at it and saw, I don't have to pay anything. I won't have any debt. And and my Tim had gone there and was really happy. And so I went, I look back on it now and I think, okay, here's what I really believe about BYU. A, it was, and this is crucial. A, when I went to BYU, late seventies, early nineties, It was a different place. Yes, it was BYU. Yes, it was the Mormon school. Yes, it was the Lord's University. No, it was nothing like it is today. No. And I know that from going down there and looking at it and the experience. It's not. It's just not. Uh, We had the honors program there. I was heavily involved in it. My first teacher and mentor at BYU throughout those years and later was Gene England. My first class and half my classes were about learning how to learn. We questioned everything. And did it create waves? Yes. We went and unfurled a political banner at the Harris Fine Arts Center when General Westmoreland came and almost got kicked out. But we didn't. We did that. We started the Seventh East Press. We held all these. It was a different place then, I'm telling you. And
0: no, I concur. I was started in 84 and it was absolutely a different environment. And make sure everyone understands he started the Seventh East Press. Tell everybody what that is. Because to me, that's such a huge deal.
2: I was one of the original group of editors. I don't want Kerry Bergera and everyone else to say, wait a minute, he's. No, no, those two, they were, they were driving <laughs> forces who were not me. I got in as the features editor with that original group. And so, yes, I would say I i, I claim some responsibility and help pushing it along. And I remember the history and getting it published and what we did on the April Fool's edition, which anybody who remembers it, I still have copies. If anybody wants one right in my closet. Oh, somewhere, I
0: it's would love funniest, a copy. One of the satires
2: on BYU Mormon culture you will ever see. And we we went around at five in the morning and put them in all the places where the Daily Herald or whatever the Daily Universe is Daily
0: up. Universe yeah so but, for for our listeners or viewers that aren't familiar on BYU campus there's the Daily Universe that's the university newspaper well throughout history there have been these little alternative wonderful journals periodicals newspapers that kind of pop up and this is one of the big ones of that era absolutely so oh so exciting
2: um it's it, it's in a different time because I mean then so let me go on here. So, okay, I, I go to BYU, and the reason for that is, there's a lot of reasons. It's it's kind of a complicated thing with no simple and obvious answer. Because I, I don't look at it and think, wow, I didn't want to go to good school, because I'm sure I did. And But I think BYU felt like it belonged more in the world of actual universities to me then. And if someone who's going to BYU takes offense at that, of me at me saying it was once an actual university and implying it's not one now... I'm sorry, but like I judge it by its works, like act like a university then and admit differences (laughs) of opinion. Then then a university, I'm not making that story up. That's what BYU does. So that is it. Was there a religious
0: component to you going? I mean, did you say it's the Lord? You know, I I'm a Mormon. This is where I go. Or was that, you know, you seem like maybe you're not quite like that. And,
2: and, And sometimes in my family, we've talked and joked with my parents that if I had gone to Berkeley instead of BYU, they think I maybe would still be in the church. I don't think that because I think there's something about me deeply inherently and the doubted things and questioned things that was there. But I do think it would have been a very different path. And the going to be way you gave me all kinds of, you know, ways to see the things I did not like about Mormonism. I, I know that Greg and I, I remember we were the only ones I hated immediately that when the national anthem went off in the morning at night, everyone stopped. I said, Why do I have to stop? I'm not required to stop. So I didn't stop. I walked. And boy, did I create problems. I remember one day when the (laughs) ROTC guy ran and tackled me. And, you know, because I just said, I'm not stopping. But, you know, they didn't kick me out. Nothing like that happened. And, um, you know, being-
0: Do you know that Landon on campus? That that's, uh, Landon went to Uh, Utah State State University.
1: I I, I was in the military and I know at every military post you have to stop and do Yeah, no, This
0: was on campus. They would do that and you'd have to just hold still even if you were late or- (laughs)
2: <laughs> it's like, but it, to me, it, it's more like the Colin Kaepernick thing. It's not about, do I hate the flag and want to stomp on it? It's, I don't want to be forced to respond to the flag in exactly the way you're prescribing it. And that everyone has to, whether it's because of my early years in the church or not. I've never been a joiner. I'm very uncomfortable conforming and being parts of groups in general. And I think if there's the church there. There's me being a twin there. There's being me being part of a large homogenous family there. They, people used to tease us. We were like the Brady Bunch. There's something about that that I've always pushed away from. Pushed away from. I want to be on my own. I want to be independent. I want to be solitary. I don't want to just go along. So, really groupy, groupthink activities make me deeply uncomfortable. Yeah.
0: So BYU was perfect for you.
2: <laughs> no, it just... was perfect. For you. Well, so so I go to BYU, and I remember, you know, six kids, and the older four of us are within four years of each other. So Tim goes, then goes on his mission. Greg and Jeff go, and go on their missions. Allison goes and goes on her mission. All four of us were at BYU at part of the same time. And um, I went to BYU and again, my freshman year hadn't gone, I'm enrolling in a, a, a late summer honors, which is a component of the honors colloquium that begins in the fall. So that means going two weeks early, reading a bunch of books with a professor and getting early stimulation. The late summer honors that Bragg and I just happened to sign up for was the pre, 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 prequel to the colloquium called Learning How to Learn that was taught by Gene England. I'm sitting there with my dad in the late 70s looking at this thing. We're about to go to college. And he says, oh, your professor is Gene England? And I'm like, yeah, you Gene England, who's that? He said, I went to college with Gene England. We wrote for the Utah Daily Sports paper together at the U together. He went on. He said, Gene was such a good writer. We had to kick him off the sports page because he wrote he wrote too too much literary, lyrical stuff. We just wanted him to tell the sports. and He wouldn't do it. And he laughed. He said, we were all friends. And then he told me about, he started this thing called Dialogue. And whatever, whatever. I was kind of like, oh, interesting. So, okay. Now, I had had brushes with controversy before. My dad you know, challenging the black position on the priesthood earlier when, he, you know, people in his stake high council wanted him as communicated or him, you know, questioning the role of women in the church saying, you know, they should have more of a prominent role, stuff like that. My family was pretty open to you question things. He He's the one who told me, uh, you know, every Saturday when we were little, he'd take one of us on a trip with him. And on one of my trips, I asked him about the nature of God. And at one point I just remember him saying, we don't know a lot and you should always question what you get don't just take it because it's told to you doubt it and so that was there and i doubted a lot but um things started to happen i remember i was in a sunday school class when he was the bishop in ithaca new york and my teacher was going on and on about tithing and for some reason i I was just like my my non-conformist streak was profoundly offended and at a certain point, she just said, Jeff, what do you have to say about tithing? And I said, well, I want to pay my tithing to the devil. And <laughs> she, she went to my dad in tears, and she never taught Sunday school again. Oh and my dad, everyone in, uh, everyone in our ward in Ithaca knew that the bishop's kids were the worst kids, right? Um,
0: Critical thinkers. So- there you go. Very dangerous.
2: <laughs> exactly. So so I come back from my, so, so I go on my mission. This is my my, my freshman year before my mission. I'm. Then colloquium was eight credit hours. That's half your schedule. Yeah. So I went to this colloquium, which was Gene England's first year at BYU. He's been out there in the world. He's got his PhD at Stanford. He's taught at St. Olaf because he can't get a job at BYU because he's too controversial. Finally, he gets in. Part of it is Dallin Oaks and Jeff Holland, the presidents, two I had. They yeah. were close to him then, not later. They betrayed him later. And I'm happy to talk yes, about they it did. on record. Yeah. I was there i saw it all happen and he starts teaching there the first year we came there his first year he's got this new colloquium in the honors program called learning how to learn and so greg and i are two of the students in this 15 student colloquium we meet every single day from like 1 till 5 pm every day of the whole oh semester my gosh. so we spent a lot of time with him we went on a <clears throat> outward bound trek with him we went on trips with him. We took him to the NCAA March Madness. We took him to a jazz game. We played tennis with him. We played basketball with him. We hung out at their house. We were very close to him and he shaped my worldview. Absolutely. I still think learning how to learn is is good a way. It's not a sexy name, but it's pretty much what I still teach to my students at Oberlin college. It's like, this is what you're here to learn, how to be a human being that can continue to learn and be open, not how to master a camera or look, or memorize Chemical formulas. It's how to learn, how to grow, evolve, to have a growth mindset. And I got that from Gene, which really started with my dad, right? You can see the steps here. Yeah. So, to answer your question, Landon, in a super long winded way, is we went on our missions. I remember Gene writing me my mission, me expressing doubts, da da da. You know, they lived right next to the MTC. I remember visiting him at the MTC. I went on a mission to Guatemala. I had profound doubts. If you watch my film, you know all about that. I'm expressing doubts throughout my journal blah, blah, blah. But my mission goes from being kind of nightmarish hell from the first half to a much better one on the second half, largely because the new mission president knew my dad and was a kid in Guatemala when my dad was a missionary there. And so he calls me to be his assistant eventually. we become very close. I enjoy missionary work much more because I'm connected to the community, which I think is, is a real thing you know, that doesn't change. And that's kind of what we were going to talk about. Maybe we'll get to it about what happens when you're part of a community and then you don't believe the same things anymore. Are you suddenly, we're not friends anymore. It's dead. So that was all happening. I come back from my mission with the determination to stick to what I believe, but knowing inside there was something missing. And as I put it in my in my film, when I got off the plane on my return, something inside said, this isn't going to work. You're not going to, it's not going to Hold you well, you're not going to fit in this culture anymore, and I battled that and denied it because you know the price of going with that meant a huge amount of change, and a huge amount of discomfort, and a huge amount of heartbreak for a lot of people that I cared about, and not to mention me. So, your question was, you know, did you leave in a sort of simple way? No, the way I left is I slowly inched and bled my way out of it and part of it was because i just probably didn't have the guts to stand up and say i got to go now and i didn't know all the, any other way to do it and so you know i, I finished at byu the three years after my mission i was at byu but i went less and less and less to church the last bishop we had was joseph fielding McConkie, <laughs> who in, i'm sorry in,
0: what a name right <laughs> who,
2: who in his interview with my brother about a sexual thing. Didn't even get to that. All he wanted to do was rant at us because he knew we were connected to Gene England. All he oh. did was rant and rant and rant about how Gene England could not wash away his sins with powdered milk for Poland. If you remember, Gene was in milk or food for Poland back then, and that's yes. a political. Thing.
0: Yep, he he, all activist. he wanted to do
2: was slam Gene England. So, you know, Greg and I, Tim kept going to church. We we're all in the same war that last year. Greg and I slowly receded. I remember going to church at the very end, just showing up kind of in a nominal way and then running home and ordering dominoes and turning on the NFL. And which is pretty much
1: what I still which do. You but you could get
0: away with at BYU, back absolutely. then. Absolutely, you could not today. And you, in fact, Jeff, were the valedictorian that year. Weren't you in 84 when you graduated? Is that, am I right on that?
2: That is correct. That is correct.
0: Okay. Cause I was thinking (laughs) my freshman, my freshman year started the fall of 84. So we just barely missed each other, but yeah. But I interacted with Eugene, too, through, you know, English classes and, and meetings in his home and just, I mean, of course, not to the level you did, but he was an icon there. And I would love for you to talk about what eventually happened, because I think many people knew him, loved him, were devastated um, by some of the end results and, and still think about it to this day, you know.
2: And and I, I want to return those statements. You know, I said Jeff Holland and Dylan Oaks betrayed him. Yes. The- those are big things to say. So when we get yeah. to them, please pay attention. I don't say them lightly or casually yeah. or with intent to be disrespectful. I say it because I went I was with Jean at times when I saw the what happened and what the pain that was caused. So
1: I, I need to clarify one thing here. You were the valedictorian. Was your brother the salutatorian? Is is that the next one? Down?
0: salutatorian, <laughs> yeah.
1: You may not have got the scholarship, but you got the valedictorian.
2: <laughs> well, he was he was the one. He was the val- He got the Spencer Campbell scholarship going to BYU. Right, I'm right. Valedictorian leaving BYU, and there's not it's that there is a relationship there because as a twin, competitive to yeah. everything. I thought, you know, I, I was absolutely chastened when Greg got a higher scholarship, and thought I'm going to outdo him now. And I do not say that proudly because it is a toxic influence in your life to be competing all the yeah. time. What did I say, who said that John Adams or somebody that uh, competi- competition or com- comparison is the thief of happiness of joy? Oh. It is, boy, is it. Uh, Greg and I have worked to be non-competitive our whole adult lives, and it's just built into our DNA almost that we everything's a rivalry. Uh, I don't recommend it. Um, so anyway, he, he was. He and I both spoke at graduation. There's a story there, but, you know, my GPA was a little higher than Greg's. That made me the valedictorian, but we were the two graduation speakers. The, speaker at the, the person who got uh, an honorary degree and the speaker behind us was Bruce McConkie. My dad wow. was... Wow. Yeah, it was wild. And we gave a talk. We knew since Bruce McConkie was speaking that we had to give a talk that if we expressed anything honest, we're going to have to encode it. Symbolize it. What artists have always done. Symbolize your dissent right. so that the people, the fascists in power, can't understand it. It's what political artists do. It's what whatever. Well, I so love,
1: symbolize your. Say
0: that Dissent. You've, yeah. you've got to.
2: you got to. you got to disguise your 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 opposition to the power by by putting it in enough carefully wrought artistic media that they don't even get what you're saying. Oh, wow, but anyone who wants to pay attention <laughs> does. So the, the most subversive films in during the Spanish Civil War and right after during Franco's era are all movies that are stories about families that if you read them, look at them carefully, they're about the family of Spain and what's wrong with it. But of course the you know Franco and his generals didn't see, didn't read them that way because they didn't understand movies. People who are political authoritarians by definition, don't understand nuance, subtlety, complexity, which is what human being is all about and what art is all about. So um, we, Greg and I, I remember this very distinctly because they came to me from the BYU and this is another thing that would never happen today. I'm sure this will horrify any practicing woman who hears it from the church, from BYU. They had a practice then as most schools do and BYU certainly did that they needed to vet the talk. And they, they asked for it four weeks in advance. Well, anybody who knows me and Greg and, and on this spot, I don't know who does, but you know that we are we, are, we can procrastinate with the very, very best in the world. And we we wrote that talk, wrote it at 4 a.m. the day of, okay? And so <laughs> they, I remember <laughs> being badgered, 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 badgered by the, the person in charge of the commencement saying, you have to give us a talk to vet. You have to. And I just said, I don't have a talk. I can't give it to you because I don't have it. Their choice was to shut me down, shut us down or not. And they didn't. We got up and gave a talk. We wrote it as a dialogue between us. And it actually was recorded on Utah television. And I have a VHS tape of it, which I can't bear to watch. But there it is. Uh, if you ever want it, I, I actually do have a copy of it. Um, wow. <laughs> and it's there. It's Greg and Jeff getting up and giving this talk that's back and forth where, and we built in all kinds of subversive comment to it. I don't think it was obvious to very many people. And Bruce McConkie got up right after us and he got up there and said, well, I've read the Plato's dialogue and now I've heard the Pingree's dialogue or something like that. And <laughs> Greg and I kind of looked at each other and thought, well, at least he didn't really pay attention to anything we said, right? So he's not offended. Um, there it is. Wow. Oh um
0: that is just incredible.
2: So, so so I, I'm there for that year. I go on a mission, and I come back. The last few years I'm sailing out of church. And at the end of our years at BYU, Gene Engel is going to is going to take a group to London study abroad in London. The thing he loved most. He loved doing it. I see why he was an English professor, a Shakespeare scholar. He loved the romantic poets and he had done it before and he just loved it. And I understood why when I went with him. So he's taking a study abroad there. The, the year after we graduate, Greg and I are seniors. Well, we both wanted to go to graduate school or decided to. So we applied, but we, we didn't get around to it. So we did it a year later. So we had a year in between.
1: Because um, you procrastinate. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> certainly a huge part. Of, absolutely, we did. They're the
0: most <laughs> successful procrastinators I've ever heard of. That's
1: right. you, you will never. You will never get a
2: defensive response in the least from either of us by saying that, and, and I promise you, we both know it's true. And we have to, own it. so, we, but but basically he asked me and Greg to be his teaching assistants for the study abroad since we were in that year between. And we stuck around, my parents were in Ecuador as mission presidents. We didn't have a place to go home to. So I stayed on and we were nominally in the graduate program at BYU. And so we taught you know, English classes as TAs and et cetera. And then we went on the study abroad with Gene Ingram as his assistants. My sister, Allison happened to go as a junior or senior in college as a student in the same program. And then there are a bunch of other people. So it was Gene and Charlotte and Jane and Rebecca then Rebecca at the time and Mark, And their other kids were older and visited, but we all went over there and that was his then last time. And what happened over there is I left pretty much publicly left the church there in London. Well, I went once and then didn't go again. Now, think about this. A Mormon BYU study abroad in London two TAs, which today you would basically have to have a temple recommend for and and effectively be a religious leader for. Greg and I, I think I would say proudly and without apology, we're great intellectual leaders. We were terrible spiritual examples. We never went to church and we got blamed for a lot of stuff because of that. And you know, there were other reasons to blame us for things, but that wasn't one of them. I remember Gene sitting in Gene's apartment on a Sunday afternoon, the second Sunday after we didn't go to church, talking to him about what was happening. And this was a very pivotal moment in my life and in my relationship with him. And I remember talking to him and telling him very honestly what I believed and didn't believe and that I needed to leave the church. And he said to me, referring to an old friend of his named, I believe, George Smith, he said, it might be the right thing for you to do to leave the church. And no one had ever said that to me before. Even my own dad, after my mission, when I can talk to him eventually about it, said, it breaks my heart that you're leaving, but I respect your decision for being independent and doing your own life, but even even he was difficult. But when Gene said that to me, it was really important uh, because I felt the kind of affirmation and support that you know I I, I felt like he understood where I was, and I, I, from then on, I, it didn't suddenly make me happy and make it easy, but it, it made it give me some kind of um, I want to call it spiritual and intellectual capital to feel like there's this this is an honest undertaking. Because the thing I, I felt tempted to, to experience whenever I questioned beliefs or when I left the church or when I made my film or anything like that was shame. Because there were always going to be a lot of disappointed, disapproving Mormons. Um, and, you know, shame for anyone who's grew up a Mormon and is battled with how can you have, be a normal sexual being and a Mormon at the same time knows that shame is just the water you bathe in. Uh, and it's it's a really damaging thing to a lot of people. And it certainly was to me. It, I think it made my whole relationship with sex permanently complicated, way beyond necess- what should be, and um, led to a lot of unhappiness. It's something I will battle with till the day I die. I'm certain of it. Um, so I kind of left the church in London, and I think Greg did too. Allison, I, you know, there's always a lot going inside of her head that she didn't say out loud that Greg and I barked out. Greg more than I, I'll give him credit. He was more of the outspoken one than I was. And, and um I think that's when it started. And so when we came back from London, we both then went to graduate school the next year to, to study whatever we did. And he went to Brown and I went to Chicago. And uh, you know, we had we had gr- applied to graduate schools, identifying the top 12 and p- picking them out of a hat so that we couldn't go to the same grad school because we decided it was the right thing at this point in our lives having gone to BYU together to be have separate lives. So he's going off to Brown, going to Chicago, and and you <clears> never <throat>
0: considered graduate school at BYU. You're like, not going to be. Yeah, he's yeah. Like,
2: no. <laughs> by then it was clear to me. Like, I knew what I liked about BYU, and I'm, I'm not I'm not shy about defending it. Right. I'm not just I'm not just Mormonism down. No, it's too complicated to say that. There's a lot of things right. I loved BYU and had a good time there, but the things that are deep and that matter that have become worse and worse and worse since I was there are too important to me. You can't support those things in good conscience, I can't. So yep. I often we went to grad school and it was really in grad school where I left the church in a more formal way. It was I had never drunk alcohol before. I remember asking friends at graduate school parties, "I'm um, here I am, I'm 25 years old, a couple of years older, which means nothing now, but at the time I felt like I'm this old guy. I went on a mission, they're all 22, 25, how can it be? <laughs> i remember asking them with great embarrassment and shame like what's what's a scriber what's a a whiskey and whatever what do these things mean right and figuring that out is when i I first smoked marijuana it's when i was just experimenting i didn't i first had sex when i was 25 um which is really late and i'm here to tell people what about my sex life i'm but just to say that even no, it's all part
0: it's, of it. These experiences are, that is, are normal, a normal adult things, they are delayed for people who are raised in Mormonism. De-delayed and then when and you get on the other side of it and distorted, they are. And you do, you feel, I mean, that's why sometimes we'll have episodes on how to drink coffee. Don't be afraid, you know, go order it. This, I mean, the simple things, the adult things, you are never allowed to actualize and understand. So no, these are, are poignant stories. I mean, you laugh kind of, but it's a real thing. And there's a I, lot I of- now. Confusion.
2: Because, but a lot of confusion. And 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 as I'm telling this story, I'm realizing that this the sort of structure that's here. So in Chicago, I'm doing these things for the first time that most kids did when they were younger. They'd right. represent big things. I remember still the day that I went behind my apartment in Hyde Park in Chicago. It was freezing winter when I decided to stop wearing my garments. And I took them off. And even though I didn't believe, I still had enough of a kind of respect, fear. What am i doing is this the wrong thing relationship with it all i remember cutting the marks off and burning them as i had been told to do because i thought at least i don't want to incur the wrath of the temple <laughs> if it's like i wanted to hedge my bets right because uh,
0: yeah
2: you know that whole thing with the temple like I, I, going through the temple before my mission scared the absolute shit out of me i thought whoa what did i just promise yeah. how could i do uh, that yeah. i have no idea what i was just supposed to do yeah. um but you know there i was not believing it. Why am I wearing this underwear? But if I take it off, I'm really out there. I'm actually in that group that they condemn and say I can suffer terrible penalties. Am I, I'm a denier of the faith, right? I'm, where am I? I'm going to hell basically. Right. This is a big, big yeah. thing. What if I'm wrong? Right. So that was happening when I went to the university of Chicago. And it's, I think it's really interesting because I'm on my own there completely. So many of my sort of independent things started, but I went to Chicago in large part because Jean England recommended that I go there and study with this guy who had been one of his great influences named Wayne Booth, who was a Mormon, grew up in Utah, went off and became this really prominent literary scholar at the University of Chicago. He was a lapsed Mormon. And yet he hung out with and made community with the Mormons till the day he died. He was from American Fork. And he told me till the day he died, he still had a part of him that felt like he should be going back to church, even though he couldn't believe it. And when they... They, and we'll talk about that in a minute, when Gene got booted from BYU again later in his career. I remember Wayne showing me correspondence he had with Dallin Oaks, who had been his mission companion. Dallin yeah. Oaks and uh, Marion D. Hanks had been people he knew in his mission. Wait, wait, let me back up. I I, I I want to put an asterisk. He may not have been a mission companion of Dallin Oaks, but they were very close. No, no. He was mission companion with Marion D. Hanks, and they were very close till the very end. You can kind of see that there if you think about it. Dallin Oaks, he came to know because Wayne was at the University of Chicago grad school and Dallin Oaks was a prominent law professor at Chicago. That's when Dallin Oaks had high, high credentials in the legal community. And he and Wayne were very close intellectually. Well, when this happened to Gene later, Wayne started writing to Dallin Oaks. And I'll tell you about that when we get to that story. But basically, Wayne Booth told me about how he was a missionary in Chicago and he decided he didn't believe it then. Started drinking coffee then. So my dissertation advisor was a guy who himself had grown up, been fully socialized as, and left the church in a Mormon family, so Mormon that his his wife's father was my grandfather's mission companion and best friend.
1: Oh right.
0: There's no was, end to this, oh, right? There.
2: <laughs> so I'm saying this because Wayne used to tell me that when when her his father-in-law would come to town, that run and hide the wine in the cupboard and put the coffee behind the <laughs> right. You get that, right? And so. I, my point is, I was I had these three hugely influential male mentors who were all in the church to some degree or, or another, and but but all and also were very understanding and supportive of the complexity and embraced the path that may lead out. My dad, Gene England, and Wayne Booth, and it was like a natural one, two, three. So, in a way, I think I had the luckiest of all paths because I had support, understanding, and respect. All the way along, even though inside I was struggling mass- massively with my self-worth, with my feeling of like, uh, you know, I'm doing a terrible thing with self-contempt, which I still struggle with. It's th- that stuff, you know, burned into you when you're very young. And, uh, you know, so my leaving the church was a very gradual thing. And it was kind of contextualized by all these events through BYU and then Chicago and grad school. I took 10 years to get my PhD, which in the old days was kind of a common thing because it it was a joke. Not any longer today. They push your butt through in four years. I got through in 10 years. And you know why I got through without, with any shame or problem? Because Wayne Booth was my dissertation advisor and he got the Mormon procrastination thing. He never judged me for it. He (laughs) knew immediately what was going to happen with me. He, He saved my ass so many times and he's gone now. And I just like, I hope anybody knowing Wayne listening to this will remember. I, I those three people, my dad, Gene, and Wayne, are, I love and, and revere all of them for how kind, humane, and supportive they were with me and honest because they all no. shaped my life. And here I am out of the church, and Wayne got out, but Gene and my dad stayed in. But there was a, a kind of an integrity along that path that I only, I try to emulate, but I, am, I would never, and I mean this, I would never see myself. As having the level of integrity that any of those three had. And that, that's what why they were important to me, because they really stood by what they believed and they spoke out and took the consequences. I don't feel like I've ever paid a price at all like they had to pay. So
0: wow. No, you're so lucky. And it's so wonderful that you can talk about them and share stories about them and you know keep all of that alive because that's it's a unique experience now that you describe it in that way. That's wonderful. It's amazing. I mean, I, I think let
2: me let me just add, and we may come back to some of this, but I want to say here that, I want to be careful about how I say this. Probably a conversation about Jane England and my relationship with him should be a larger, separate conversation, and Greg at least should be involved because he was had a very similar relationship and was part of the thing that happened. Um, that, you know, in recent years, I left the church back close to college. And then these decades passed. And then I started to pay attention to the church again when I made my film and showed it. Um, and so now like talking to you guys, I think this is what the church is like now. Here's what people, young people yeah. are like, Here's, and and I've attended some Sunstone things and I've attended some things and I've attended a couple of symposia organized around Gene. And I've noticed something, you know, these two biographies that came out in the last couple of years, Terrell Givens and, um, yep. I'm forgetting her name. I'm sorry. Uh, Valerie is Hexstrom. Anyway, Valerie, did I get that right or wrong? Anyway, two, they're kind of different, but each of them in their own way, there's something very notable about them that I've also noticed in a lot of the talks by younger people who are progressive in the church and want to honor Gene. You said Gene's become an icon. He is now. He was a very, very imperfect, flawed dude that I relied on heavily when I was in college, like my dad's age. And although I understood he was important, my dad has said he was a big deal in dialogue, he was no icon to me for a long time because I, you know, I suffered w- through things with him. And b- by that, I don't mean I didn't respect him. I just mean he was not, I have, you know, kids. Well, you were
0: close. You were close. You were right, too close right. to see I that he was an to icon me. to others. And then time makes someone an icon, you know, time and makes to have founded dialogue. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And, so, and, and for no, our viewers I, and
0: listeners, I was just going to say, dialogue is the dialogue of is it Mormon dialogue of Mormon thought, right? Yeah, it's a, magazine a Journal that's of Mormon been thought, right. journal of Mormon thought, for decades and decades. It's one of the first things I, when I worked at BYU, I was cataloging it. I'm like, what's this? And I start going through the pages. And I'm going, wow, you know, it just has to, it's, it's, it's very alternative. No, and, my, and, my, and my dad told me about thinking. it. My
2: dad was one of the first subscribers. He had he has the whole set, yeah. all that stuff, and you know. I hear people, I heard, uh, what's his name? I want to remember his name but to be respectful to him because I Instagrammed him after his talk, but gave a talk at the, a recent Sunstone on a panel about Gene and the way he spoke of him and that he had been able to have the the honor of working with Terrell Givens to go through Gene England's archive. And I was like, that is an honor, but my gosh, I was there when all that stuff was actually happening. I was having those exactly. conversations reading about it. I was, yeah and I, I kind of, talked, emailed him or communicated with him and said, Hey man, if you really want to hear, I, I imagine I came off sounding like the old guy who wants to tell you the way it really yeah. was. <laughs>
0: Back in my day with Eugene England, right? Something like that. <laughs> well, my, you think point, maybe need to yeah. write your own article or your own, you know, give your own oh, on Eugene from it's your coming. point of view. Seriously. It is coming.
2: I, that would be incredible. There have been, I think three collections about Gene, reflections about Gene and your relationships with him that have come out in the years since he died. One yes. still coming out now that I think Bob Reese edited, that I've have, have had the op- opportunity to write for and have said, I'm submitting something. And as the day gets near, I just don't submit anything. And Greg and I have talked yeah. about this a lot over the years. Allison submitted something, it's really lovely. It's too complicated and too close and too painful and too, there's a lot of darkness there. And yeah, uh, there, is, there is an essay. I was going through my notes today before we spoke notes that I've made about the essay I want to write about Gene over the years. It's going to come out, but it's it's going to be a hard one. And you'll see why if we talk further. But I'm saying this because I think that there's a whole... I noticed that in Terrell Gibbs' biography, there's, we were never contacted. Now, I know that there are a million people in the world who think Gene was really their buddy. Yes. And there are a lot of people who actually were his buddy. And Gene had the capacity to be friends with a million people. I am in no way claiming privilege. But Greg and I were in his life... At his house with his family, yes. on his London trip, at the basketball yep. games, doing everything, going on hiking trips with him for years.
0: Yeah. Intimately long connected. Yeah. Maxine so- Hanks, um, who was there with you at the same era, she shared. She shared a long version and a short version of an essay that she had written about you know Eugene for I think one of these things that you're talking about. But exactly, those of you that were intimately connected, you have those stories no one else can know. I mean, they're just wonderful. They're just incredible. I, I and, just, and and such... I've,
2: wondered, I've wondered why neither Terrell nor the other person whose name I'm forgetting didn't and and, and I, I, maybe it's just that they didn't weren't aware of it because there's no reference in there. But you know, there's a there's a part of the on the, the his London experience, but. We were there and that's that doesn't square with the London experience I had. There's an inside version of that that is not being told. And I just feel like if we're going to tell have an, a biography of Jean, my gosh, that's a document that needs to be thorough and honest. And I just don't understand why nobody ever contacted me or Greg to talk to us about it. Alison says to me, she was at a symposium once when they were talking about gathering materials for a gene and Gingland biography, and she raised her hand and said, Hey, if you want to get the this chapter of Gene's life, you should talk to my brothers and they didn't um so maybe they
0: don't want that close of a look you know because it's representative of the church at that time i mean a certain part of the maybe they don't want that close of a look i don't know but i do so please write your article please do what you need to do (laughs) because i caught the very tail end when i was there in the mid to late 80s so but yeah. Well, let, me,
1: let
2: me reference this, and so, so that if we don't, which is totally fine, don't keep return to a kind of focus on Gene and that part of it. Just say, you know, I saw Gene when I when I left. One of my great regrets in my life is that I didn't go to Gene's funeral. I was I was in Oberlin. I just started teaching there, and for a lot of reasons that would be part of the larger story at the time. It didn't. I felt like it somehow didn't make sense. But now I can't believe I thought that. Uh, the fact that he died just before 9-11 is. For anyone who knew him, a profoundly ironic thing. Uh, and I, but I do remember the last experiences I had with him. And one of the very last involved me sitting with him when he was packing up the office at BYU he had had because he'd been kicked out of BYU. Um, and he told me about what happened with Jeff Holland and with Alan Oaks and what promises had been made to him by them, to his face and how they had been broken and he had been betrayed and deceived. And there was a side of Gene that came out then that I'd never, ever seen before. And it was darkness, Uh, something that no one talks about really very much. And so part of why my essay on Gene England, which is what the working title is, is that mine doesn't begin with he was the most awesome guy in the world because he was. That goes without saying. Everybody speaks about how influential he was. But, you know, my relationship started with Gene when he started talking about how do you how do you justify theodicy, the existence of evil in the world with a good God? went through it's okay if you leave the church in fact it might be the right thing and ending with an anger and a bitterness and a darkness coming out of him at people in the church that i never had never seen nor heard of from anyone else now i'm sure charlotte and all the all the kids and the family wait he doesn't know You're right. I don't know. I'm just talking about me and the world I lived in and my experience with him and what everyone else ever said. And was I a child of Gene? No. Was I his spouse? No. But I had – my world was very close to Gene as a mentee and someone who – he became a surrogate father. Absolutely. He took what my dad had done and took it way farther, just as then Wayne Booth took what Gene had done and took that way farther. And I attribute that to them. And and Gene was (laughs) – you know, I, I can anyway, it's uh
0: <laughs> we can do a whole other episode, but I think that we should because Landon probably isn't familiar with the scenario. What did happen? I mean, and I think the anger you talk about is probably for decades. You know, you've got to keep so much in when you're working at BYU. And he, of course, could be more nuanced. He could express that. But still, in the end, you know, it comes down to that moment. And okay, maybe to, you and can
2: and just. The, the, the London experience at the end that sort of blew things up, that began the explosion based on which he was booted from BYU, a big piece that fueled it then. And I'm sure anyone who went on that London trip and Charlotte and family, if they're listening, I'm sure this is their (laughs) with bated breath. You know, (laughs) part of that is because Greg and I were, you know, Jeff Holland came over as BYU's president to visit that London abroad at the end of the term. We remember him coming in and sitting at our table and having dinner with us. There's a lot more to say about that. But, you know, the fact that his two TAs didn't even go to church didn't help. The fact that he interviewed a bunch of students, and some of them, the few more conservative students, who I think probably were pretty disapproving of me and Greg, though I think a lot of them have been my friends for life. But we were honestly struggling to believe what we believed. We weren't trying to provoke or hurt anybody. We were good Academic leaders, but in the church, no, that got Gene in a lot of trouble. Because they said, you know, we're here and these TAs don't even go to church. There's no spirit here. What can we? And I felt then we went on us on the as often happens that we TAs went off and traveled on the continent with a bunch of different groups of students. And somehow, somehow. These rumors started that Greg and I were off leading students astray and breaking their faith and and, you know, giving them cocaine and all these rumors. And none of that was true. I'm the I will cop right here publicly to saying the first time I ever tasted alcohol was at a Spanish flamenco thing in Madrid when I was on study abroad. But I wasn't a drinker and I wasn't a drug dealer. I wasn't a taker. But that happened. But but that started. And so when Jeff Holland got word of all this stuff coming back. Right about, oh, Gene England, we sent him on a study abroad and he doesn't even take leaders who believe in the church or go to church and they take the students off and lose their testimonies. That's the last time Gene's ever gone to England. And when when I heard that that was, Gene was never going to be supported to go to England again, even though he did in a mini way later, that broke my heart because I knew how much that meant to Gene. And Greg and I both, to this day, I feel profound regret and shame about screwing up something that meant so much to Gene. And if I could see Gene right now, I I apologize to him then, but I would, that would be the first thing that I would want to say to him. I would say, my friend, my brother, my father figure, I am so sorry, because I know how that meant to you. And, you know, you, you never did anything, except support me. And I feel really bad about that, that I would, I would have been more careful. I couldn't foresee what my actions right. would How could
0: you have known? How could you have known? I, I mean, I you're just following been. your path. And because you're not completely believing, suddenly you're giving cocaine to students. Or you're, you, do you know what I mean? That's where it goes. There's no spirit here. Yeah, it's typical. Yes, absolutely and just for the typical. record,
2: I've never given cocaine to students. That's never happened. Yes, so, let's make this clear. I-
0: that is not why we're having Jeff on the program. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um i so so oh th- 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 let's bracket that and just say gene was an important influence during that whole period but then when i am in chicago and through grad school you know all these things changed first time i drank right. first time i smoked pot first time i right. had sex and it was with right. someone I got involved with someone who was married at the time oh my gosh i'm what involved with a, in a married woman i had to go to therapy You're being an I adult person yeah. going to therapy <laughs> in my family because i thought my world was going to explode she right. was catholic and married i was mormon and we our, our collective guilt sunk that relationship like that. And, wow. you know, it just it just began this whole sort of like thing that if you if you wanted to measure my life on Mormon standards, it was a colossal going off the rails and into tragedy. Of course,
0: darkness. And you're the you... stereotype. You know, yeah, of course, that's going to happen. All those things are going to happen and, and you're going to end up in therapy because you've walked away. Instead, you're just starting to live your life, you know, and figuring it out.
2: And if you want to you, wanna, you know, take this trajectory I've charted for, through my family and my dad and Jen England and Wade Booth in grad school, what I realized when I made my film some 20 years later is what changed is the, pro- pro- the protagonist in my life went from being certainty to uncertainty. Because oh, in the academic brilliant. world, in the university, if you're really a university, uncertainty and questions and critical thinking is the core. It is the principle, you must question everything. That's how you learn. You come to truth through, what does the Mormon say? Opposition in all things. That's why paradox is such a sacred concept to me. There is an other side to everything. Nothing is exactly what it seems, nothing. We can't pretend that anything is the, means something is that. And so my, in my film, uncertainty emerges as the protagonist. Right, that's what threatens the people in Guatemala. That's what doesn't square for them. They're like, you're in or you're out. I'll pray for you to come back. That's I'm carrying uncertainty. And when I'm teaching my students, that's all I teach them: question everything. First day of class, my role here is to knock you off balance, to make you question everything. That's the narrative of my life. And so my relationship with Mormonism, you, you get me in the right pocket of experience. And I am as dark and as bitter and angry and as fuck you as anyone you will find, I promise you. Because when I see that happening to people being sort of abused spiritually or deceived mm-hmm. or you know drowning in shame, I'm really angry about that. But I can't also, nor can I deny on the other hand that my life is so intertwined with good people who are Mormons and their courage and honesty that it's silly for me to look and say, well, The church is just a bad thing. No, my gosh, it involves millions of people and it's an organization over centuries. And how how silly to reduce it to that. But from any point of view, it's just silly. You have to look at a person's life and say, you know, where does this come into play? But the church is not a single thing. And that's part of the question here, right? It's not a single thing. And and I know what I try to do in my film, we're not talking about it, is be careful with things that you can't just reduce to a single thing. And respect... The different ways they can be understood and experienced, and then you'll be okay. Be honest but respectful. And that film didn't include hardly any of my real anger towards the church, yeah. or any of the more the more kind of horrible things that I would say happened. But it went to the core of it, which is this ain't going to work for me. It just doesn't allow the world to be what my world is. It it's the whole fit question, you know. If all you feel every day and experience is the kind of shape of your open ended doubt. And all you live is in a world where the narrative repeatedly and insistently and with great price is it must be certain. It must conclude. If you do this, it will work out. Right. How does that fit?
0: Well, it doesn't fit because it never does work out. And then you're left with those overwhelming feelings of what did I do or what happened? So I thought it was interesting when we first met you, Landon and I were kind of like, oh, he seems like he's been removed from mormonism for a very long time like if you remember when we first connected Leonard and i would say things like oh what about this or and you're like i i'm not really following you know you weren't immersed in it like some of us are so do you feel like now maybe you're almost pulled back in now that more people know about your film they're talking to you you're talking to us i mean and it's not a good thing or a bad thing i mean both Leonard and i think we've kind of said oh it, it must be so nice he seems like he's very removed he's not like battling this day by day like we kind of feel we are. So I wonder if you if that was accurate, were you removed and now do you feel like you're a little more in now that you're interacting more or or do you just want to run away?
2: <laughs> if I show up to Salt Lake at my parents' house and some certain extended relatives are going to show up for a family thing and they're, you know, on the political scale different from mine, and they're very conservative mormons and they think that I'm a lost soul. Yes. yeah I want to run away I don't want right. to be at that gathering and in fact I do I usually just go though I've tried to not that's the shame I carry <laughs> Did I feel shamed because I made a choice what's wrong with me why am I not angry at them for being right. so exactly ridiculously exactly judgmental but that's how yep. that works those things are deep if on the other hand but, but but I think my better answer is I feel like I have returned to connection with a community of Mormons that did not really exist extensively when I left because that this middle post-Mormon, ex-Mormon, making my film and pushing it on social media, one of the most revealing things is, oh my gosh, there are so many people in the world who are ex-post something beyond Mormons, former Mormons. Back then, it just felt, and so I think the thing we talk about, like, give it a century and we'll be like the Jews or the Catholics, where there's, right. you know, Jewish reform, orthodox, yep. conservative,
0: cultural, yeah, exactly, liberal, you don't have to yeah.
2: You literally to be okay in those faiths. Mormonism right. is slowly widening horizontally, so that there probably are eventually going to be places where, yeah, I'm a Mormon, but I'm a, I'm a liberal Mormon. I'm a post-Mormon, exactly. I'm still whatever. And it it won't come under direct condemnation by the, the you know doctrine of the church or something like that. I don't know. Churches are organizations. Organizations s- protect themselves to survive. It it is no different than any other, in that respect. That explains awesome. a lot.
1: Did it surprise you at the? Uh the, the premiere of your movie that we did in Salt Lake, the number of people who stood up and, and shared with you, uh, their experiences and how much your film related to them. Did, did that surprise you when you say that there weren't so many at the time when you left, did it surprise you at that point, or had you already kind of began to notice that prior Because I I felt it was very moving. A lot of the comments, people were literally crying. People were in tears. They
0: were so overwhelmed and sharing their stories of, you know, how this, they could relate to the film about the mission and sharing how they lost community after leaving. It was, it was very emotional. Absolutely.
2: Uh, um, I think the most, the single most uh, striking feeling I had was the last thing you said, which was. I had no idea that so many people who went on a mission once and have had any degree of dissonance with the church, whether it be internal doubts or full on, I'm out, you know, middle finger, valued relationships in their mission that they had to kind of closet away shamefully afterwards because they couldn't represent themselves except as fallen, tragic, failed figures so i had no idea that and it kind of in thinking about it i think why didn't i have that idea it seems pretty obvious but i was struck because my experience if i want to be a little reductive is i went to screen my movie in Lake for the mormon community for the first time you know two plus years after it came out and i felt like the whole night was going from one person to another and every person i encountered had to tell me their story it wasn't my story. It was their story. My movie Is was this story
0: Sunstone. Story. Was this when you screened oh, in? No, a yours, sunstone? The one oh no, Oh, okay. I thought you said the first time. Oh, so you are. The talking first time about I ours. screened. Okay.
2: It, it screened at at remote online zoomed Sunstones, and I don't really oh, consider. okay. Them. So okay. it did did okay. prior, but the first time okay. uh, the movie was shown in a theater okay. with a whole bunch of Mormons sitting there.
0: Okay. Was this insulting. was what. This was ours in February. Okay, all right. Continue. I just want to make sure I understood. Yeah. No, I agree. I saw everybody. Every, everyone was in a line to talk to Jeff. Like we couldn't get out of the theater. They needed us to move to the lobby. They telling us everybody, to move. And no one moved. Yeah, it was like you were this figure that understood where no one else had understood them. It, it was incredible.
2: Hmm. It's it's interesting because you know my distributor is called Good Docs in Los Angeles, and they they get responses from people who. Look at the film or buy it. And they've passed them along to me. And I've gotten a couple of incredibly bitter, scathing responses from people always practicing Mormons whose position is largely, why is everyone so negative about the church? Why can't he go on his mission and leave these people alone let him be happy? He's just so negative. You know, and the first thing I think is, well, A, she didn't watch the film. Because yeah. it's not negative. Anyone it's, could It watch is
0: that. not yeah. negative. No, and we're going to link this uh, film. It's on Amazon Prime. You can just rent it. It's the most positive, incredible, accurate. Uh, you're just going to have to watch it, everybody. Trust me. It was incredible.
2: Uh, I And I would just say, if you want to watch it, Amazon Prime, if you're a single viewer or family, if you're an institution and you're interested, just go to Good Docs. Mm-hmm. Google them on the internet. That's the, where you get the, the license to, to watch the film, and they'll be happy to give it to you. But it's... Um, no, and so 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 in that sense, it, it's weird. I think that there was a space there that most people didn't know about, which was that I didn't know about until I went and made the film, which was they're not all just happy that I'm I've left the church. In fact, they're saying things that reflect that they're not happy, they're brokenhearted and hope will and pray I'll come back. But they still have a real connection to me. And any friendship that I formed there is still alive, and there's kind of a space to be in if. All parties in good faith want it. That's that's the crucial thing, is is that all parties in good faith must want it. So when someone who leaves the church is disowned by their family, what's happening there? Well, the first thing that's happening is the people who are disowning the person who left are choosing fear over love. And and I'm not saying that like it's an easy thing because there are big moments in all of our lives, mine included, when I have chosen fear over love. Fear is really tempting. Fear grabs your anxiety. Fear makes you think the worst. Fear plays on your deepest, earliest narratives, the most powerful ones. My dad will never be together again. You have to come back. So... But eventually people work their way through it if they have courage and honesty and love to say, no, I prefer to have love. I am not selling my religion out to love my child who left the church. <laughs> I'm not selling Jesus out. That's simply not the case. And again, if you believe that, then that's that's your belief. But I, I, you watch my film, you hear me now. I know it's with me from Mormonism. It's real simple. A version of love is the answer. That is what's with me from Mormonism. Period. End of sentence. And if you don't want that, then we don't have a lot in common about Mormonism because that is what I took away from it that still still defines me and still is in my heart. It's not about like prosecution and rules and this and that and exclusion and inclusion and judgment. It's just not. Sorry, I'm not I'm not an Old Testament Mormon. I'm not about I'm about mercy. And, you know, it's so so to me, you have to work your way through that. And I, I think. The, the my, my relationship with this post-Mormon community, the, the space I found after the film when I got none of the answers that I kind of hoped I would get, though I couldn't define them, which is something that would put this all to rest. Nothing has been put to rest, but I do feel like a community opened up of people who also aren't comfortable in the church, but also have been deeply shaped by the church. And no matter how you slice that, it's complicated. And no matter how you slice that, there are human casualties. No matter how you slice it, there are relationships that come into under great duress. And so afterwards, when we were talking previously about what to talk about on this podcast, we're, we're finally getting to the podcast topic here.
0: <laughs> the um, topic is happening now. <laughs>
2: it's happening now. Just scroll to minute whatever we're at. Is no what do you do with relationships with important people? with family relationships, with meaningful relationships of any kind, what do you do with those relationships when they were forged or shaped through shared belief, and you now don't have the same beliefs? That's a real problem. And at the most explicit level, it's the parents who angrily throw the kid out because they the kid said, I'm gay. At the most subtle level, it's more like what happened in my life, where it's not as harsh, it's not as judgmental, it's not throwing you out, but it's still means that everything that we've ever gone through together is kind of adjusted and you have to re-figure out what your family is and how you connect. Part of why my family now, the children, you know, my parents had their 65th, 5th, 20th anniversary, not too long before my dad died. <clears throat> and on the way home, I was in the car with my mom and dad. And my mom said, what was your favorite thing about it to my dad? And he said, without hesitation that all six of my kids love and respect each other. And I think that's kind of where we are, but that's the result of probably a decade of working through stuff, right? When we have all left the church, A, it wasn't all of us leaving. It, you know, there was only, Greg and I were kind of the first ones out, Mark, but he was on a later time frame. He was the cleanest. But the other, Allison, man, it's been slow, slower. It's very complicated. And so, you know, I, I think it, it's easy to kind of, for me to, to gloss over it because it happened in such a soft, kind of nuanced way. But for people who are literally one day in my family for 18 years, my parents, my siblings, and the next day I'm looking for a motel with my bags and they won't take my phone calls. I don't know that experience.
0: No, like, and that's a reality though. That's a reality that we've yeah. heard from people. It really is, oh.
2: Well, it, it's, it's, it's super heartbreaking, but I, if you think about it, it's it's just so silly. That what people believe, uh, you know, I was <laughs> recently actually having a, at the at the office of a holistic healer who's been, I have back issues and he was working on me and when he works on my body, he talks to me. And I, I refer to him, Greg and I refer to him kind of jokingly as the healer, because he, you go in there and you always come out in a good mood, no matter how bad your mood is. He's in Salt Lake, you should take his number. Oh, um, we last were. time I was there... And 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 without fail, when I leave his office, his, his place and the table, I think, why didn't I have a tape recorder on? I want to remember everything we talked about. And the last time I was there, I said, I, I mentioned that. And he said, nothing that matters do you need to record or write down. You've got it. You know, the body keeps the score. You remember it. And I thought a lot about that. That's its own path of, of conversation. But I, I'm i saying this because when I was in there, <clears throat> we th- I thought about this and I thought, We were talking, he said, what do you think the nature of God is? And I said, you know, I don't know. But if I had to give you a short answer of what is God, what's God like, it would be the the following. A sum of the best actions, qualities, thoughts, behaviors I've ever seen in people I admire. That's it. And those people are people like my dad and Gene England and my booth, where kindness is the answer, respect is the answer, never harsh judgment. It doesn't mean you can't say a hard thing to someone, but it's a different thing to say, I don't agree with you. And because of that, I, I cease to acknowledge you as a human being. Right. So that to me, any sense of God there. And I thought, where does that come from? It comes from our relationships up. It's a ground up approach, whereas organizations like the church and people in power, it's all a top down approach to manage exactly. from above the individuals that support and keep your large structured organization alive. And I don't say that with, nec- that's that's how organizations work, Mormon or otherwise. They're not humans. They don't have a conscience. So they they survive. And, and so if you're managing that, at a certain point, every individual will have to make a decision between this tension of individual versus organization. They don't coincide easily. That I learned at BYU too from <coughs> Bonner Ritchie and Hal Miller. And Gene England. And so, excuse me, to me, it kind of comes down to are you going to choose an organization or are you going to choose relationships and how you treat people? And there are times in personal relationships where there's no easy choice. It's not obviously right or wrong. I mean, that's what you learn as you become an adult. That's one of the most valuable things Gene England taught me. He used to over-assign us so much that one day after class, Greg and I approached him furiously, almost in tears, saying, you give us way too much. We can never do all the assignments. What are you doing? And instead of responding, he started to laugh. (laughs) We were so angry at him. And he said, and now I do this with my students. He said, yeah, well, part of the job here is for you to have to choose things, to have to let it go. Because life isn't about an evil act versus a good act. Those aren't the hard decisions we make. The hard decisions are always between a good and a good. And you're you're learning that you're not going to get all your reading done for this class. You're not going to be able to be a perfectly check-it-all-the-boxes student. That's part of the game. And at the time, I was really pissed off at him. But but I'm really happy about that. Now, anyway, sorry, back to this. So (laughs) I I don't know. I don't know. I feel like I've now wandered off again (laughs) from our topic. No, no, no.
0: I was going to ask you about the idea you said sort of a fear when families cut somebody off. And I think that has to do with the concept of the afterlife. You talked about that before. And I had an experience in college right at, 85 ish, where I was dating someone. He left on a mission, decided it wasn't for him. He returned for, he left the MTC basically. He was only there for a couple of weeks and decided, no, I'm going to leave. So his family, as the girlfriend, called me and said, We've cut him off and disowned him. We'd like you to do this too, you know, because this Join will us. force him to go back. No, I mean, I understood it was like it was a place of love. But they had cut him off they wouldn't take his calls like you described they would give him no money he had nothing but his missionary suitcase you know and they wanted me to do the same thing so that that would force him to make the right choice so that he could be with them forever. It was a place of fear completely. Of course, I didn't do that. I helped him find an apartment. He got a job at 7-Eleven at midnight. You know, he's still active in the church. You know, he's since reconciled with his family and everything, But, but that just struck me. I mean, that was my first real world experience with a family that said, you know, hello, we've cut him off and you should too. I mean, it was just so shocking to me. It helped me kind of solidify my own feelings. I thought I would never do that to anyone, but I understood it was fear fear it's, that it's you know magic. we have to use tough love now because we've got to get him into that you know celestial, yeah, they, celestial they were realm basically with
2: us, they so. were enlisting you in a spiritual intervention. Yeah right? it was a it's spiritual a intervention. Absolutely.
0: Yep. Yep. If he has nothing, if he's on a park bench, he's going to go the only place he has. And that's the MTC. He'll come to his senses. And then, you know, but he's married in the temple. He has children. He's still in the church. They had nothing to worry about. But yeah, that was a real awakening. You know, they even went as far as arranging for us to go talk to a general authority who yelled at us from his you know to try to get us back into you know it was a big deal a pivotal event i would say in my life i've talked about it several times our viewers and listeners will know but but i do think there's that fear if you believe in that afterlife like you said and you're not going to be there with with your family that's the devastation that's the ultimate you know just devastation in everyone's life so i don't know maybe talk a little bit about that Uh, to me that's a big reality
2: to to bring it around to where We started with what Landon said, you know, I said, fear or love. And to me, the love is something that's easy to cultivate and where you can cultivate through individual relationships, ground up. Fear is a much easier byproduct of organizational thinking and decision making because it's executive action. It's from a top to control. Power in people's lives is always about lateral control, how to do it. But only the wisest people understand that more power doesn't make you happy. Donald Trump thinks it does business leaders think it do. Military people sometimes think it do. It does, but it doesn't. Power is about letting go. It's like if you're a good teacher with my students, my job is to empower them to oppose me, not to be like me. My job is to empower them to be independent thinkers. If they choose to agree with me, that's their choice, but it's just as good an outcome. And it's a more obviously successful outcome. If I teach them and what they take away is that I don't have to agree with Pingree at all. Right. That that that's what you want, and that's not what happens in the church. And so at oh, least not, not at all. Usually no, and so, so me,
1: the sorry, go ahead, Landon. I, I was gonna say what a great thought because yeah, yeah that's the church amazing. is all about power. Um, and you you just really nailed it that really life is all about empowering, not not gaining power, but empowering others. That's what that's what
2: it is, and and that was a big shift in my teaching career when I realized that that you know my my model when I was at BYU was There were teachers I had who were fascinating and smart and I just wanted to be like them. And they had all these kind of, you know, uh, devotees, followers. Gene had a million of them, but he, you know, but, and I realized that I was, could be very charismatic in a classroom. And a lot of students were just like, hey, Pingree, I want to be like him. Because anyone who's taught, if they're honest, knows teaching is like performance, it's theater. And you go in there and you're on. And you have to own that. It's great that the rush is awesome, but you've got to take responsibility for it. And at a certain point, I thought, I have all these students who like me and they want to be like me, but is is that really what's best for them? And I changed. And, you know, there's, there's a talk that again, Wayne Booth gave when he was president of the modern language association, where he, he addresses this and says, you know, our best outcome is that our students oppose us because that's where you're really teaching them because you're empowering them, not yourself. And that is the core of teaching for me. And I think it's kind of the core of relationships So nowadays we talk about power. Power is toxic, power imbalance. No, the power is not inherently anything. It can be abused and it can be used for constructive ends. And, you know, that's the focus for me is how are you using the power that you have? Because there's not a human being alive that doesn't have some power sometime. And there are plenty who are alive, who have massive amounts, who use it wisely. Not not very often, but it sometimes happens. And so, you know, I, I just think this choice I think what's happening right now, this middle layer of ex-post formal Mormons, is something that only can exist when there are enough people and enough experience and enough outcry and enough stepping up and speaking for yourself that it forces a space that a fully controlling and in charge organization would never permit. Wow. Right? The Catholic Church, the Catholic Church changed. Judaism changed, not because it shows that as the wisest pathway, but because organizations are forced to change when they realize that they will lose their membership and support if they don't adjust to what that membership needs. And so it is still a strategic decision. But one of the outcomes is positive for individuals. It's why I say this way of thinking to me is the only way to deal with where we are politically. I can't. I can't go near sanctioning and supporting so many things that I hear from people on the right politically, but I get, I can go and as their neighbor, help them fix their fence and take them bread and be nice and have a fun conversation. I can, I can get into it and I can find their goodness there too. Like act, you know, declare yourself globally, but act locally, think globally, act locally. you got to act locally. Cause that's where this comes from. And to me, churches, come on, where are they acting from? They act from the top down. <laughs> yeah. and that is what to me the shift that has happened over these past few years the good being there's a, an element of the church that has forced an openness to something but the bad thing is <clears throat> the church has doubled down in so many ridiculous ways they've eliminated all these activities that allow people to have a more complex human experience like church sports road shows dance festival boys it's all gone you know my yeah, mom's no
0: community whatsoever <laughs>
2: A church now they they have what M I A what it used to be for me I spent four yeah, days a week M I A and believe me very little of that was theological or
1: doctrinal no. yeah yeah M I A is now M I A it's
0: M I A is M I A that's right when I was a kid um we'd go water skiing that was M I A let's everybody meet at the river and then they came up with this thing called the priesthood purpose so every activity had to have that. And then it was just a slow death. But I love the concept. And I think post-Mormons, former Mormons, ex-Mormons, we try to think that, you know, why can't we leave it alone? Because we care about everybody in the organization. And sometimes change in a top-down organization can only come from the outside as they react to things. And it's almost a joke. You'll see post-Mormons really hitting an issue, drawing it to the forefront, Suddenly there'll be a change. You know, Sam Young is probably one of the biggest examples of that. You know, protect children, change youth interviews. I mean, that was cause and effect. There's no way that you can't say that didn't happen. Of course, he was excommunicated. People have to put their head on the chopping block for that. But people inside can't do that. I know they think they can. I know they try. But it really takes an outsider to come in with a great outcry. So but the landscape is completely different. Like you say, it it is
2: people who pay that price. I mean, I remember one of the things that was most unsettling to me about the September seven, was half of them were my friends and colleagues at the yeah. seventies. And I, the yes. only reason this isn't happening to me is because I don't go to any of that stuff.
0: Exactly,
2: I just disappeared. I left. I was. I'm off the map. You know. Yeah. You, you It's, it's amazing what, what happens if you, if you need to make your voice heard, you put it on social media. You can say the, f- so little and get so much trouble. And you can go out yeah. there and not ever talk about it to a Mormon and say much worse things. But if they don't know, they don't care. And yeah. And so, you know, something like Maxine Hanks, tremendously, because she pitied her twice.
0: You know? I know she I, did. Definitely. Yeah, I, I saw that um gosh, you should cut well, you'll you'll be out of town. You'll be out of the country, but at Sunstone, which is happening the last week of July, the very end of July. Um, I was reading the schedule yesterday because we and I are gonna go for sure. Um, there's a panel um to reunite the September sixth, September seventh, and uh, seven and you know, have them talk and talk about that era. So I'm like, I got that circled right there for sure. That'll that's I'm not gonna, gonna do be a amazing. zoom of any of
2: it. Do you know I, I don't I think know.
0: I think there is a Zoom component to it. I was trying to read through that. So because, oh my gosh, so many good things. But that one right there would be good. I'll find out and I'll let you know because uh, yeah, that would definitely be, like you said, those were all your best friends at the seventh. Well, East I Press. was
2: going to say, Landon, you can edit this out if you need to, but I'm formally publicly declaring, requesting a Zoom component to Sunstone for people like me who can't be there physically. I want to attend yes. and comment I on Yes, I agree. That.
0: There no, I agree. That would be amazing. And I think they are trying because, doesn't it say in the schedule, line It says something like, it says something that leads me to believe that they're planning that. So, yeah, they, they have, I know
1: during the COVID years and stuff they were doing some yes, of that. So, I sure. think they may have carried that over. You'll have They'd to. They'd be
0: crazy not to. I mean, to everybody wants Lindsay to attend, not everybody can be hand right hand there. there. Yeah. Unless you want to fly back early, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> Come really? hang out with us again in Utah.
2: Yeah, I'd love to do that. Yeah, it's the very last
0: day of July. It's like 27th, 28th, 29th. It's the very end. So,
2: Well, one other thing I would suggest, since I know they do this all well in advance, is we should think about having a panel on this topic.
0: Absolutely.
2: What happens to important relationships forged through the church when members in those relationships leave the church? Maybe that's the title right there. Because people, we hit it in a lot of different tangential ways, but but that post screening conversation, which went away from me so quickly, I went in there fearing, oh no, there's going to be a bunch of ex-Mormons who are going to come in angry and it's going to be a lot of emotional high anger, anger at the church, anger at me for being so soft, anger at Sandra Tanner was there. My gosh. And yeah. there was no anger. Maxine
0: like, was there, although you didn't get to connect. Yep. Not, Everybody was no, there. No, yep. so
2: instead it was every, it was like this, this group therapy healing session of yeah. so sad. I haven't thought about these people in 20 years. And as I think about them, it breaks my heart. They just disappeared because I left the church. That's yeah. the topic to explore because so many people, yeah. it resonates with them. And not just resonates, but seems to touch something that hasn't been touched. Like it got forgotten in the closet for 20 years.
1: Yes.
0: In some cases, it's too painful, I think, you know, and you just kind of gravitate away and you don't know what to say. And but it's still there. I mean, eventually you're going to revisit it one way or another, I think. But yeah. And and I think that I think there are different groups. I mean, you have people that help people who are having trouble, you know, where marriages are breaking up or families or friends. But but you're right. As an overall concept, um, there really needs to be more done done with that to support because it's a reality, you know. I don't know. We all live in different places. So, I deal with it by not really telling people where I'm at. And that's probably being a coward, but my parents don't have any idea that I'm out. My sibling no idea. My friends maybe get the idea something's up, but I've certainly never made a declaration. And and I don't I don't I wouldn't say it's fear of losing people because I've almost lost them even more by not being that no one knows my authentic self. Yeah. I've literally lost them even more because they do not know who I am. They do not know mm-hmm. what I'm doing, what I care about, what I'm passionate about. They don't know my new world, my new friends, my new, so they know nothing. So I have already lost them, even though physically I'm not dealing with that disappointment in their eyes. I'm lo- I've am lost them, if that makes any yeah, kind that, of
1: that, sense. That, so. that's,
2: what, that's what one eventually gets, I, I, isn't it? If you, if you mm-hmm. avoid it long enough, you you get the thing you feared in greater yeah. proportion. Yeah, And
0: that's exactly right.
2: It's fascinating because I was going to say, don't they listen to the podcast? Don't they? Obviously, they... they It's and a you,
0: hidden world.
2: It's a chosen... <laughs> it's it's also a chosen... It's a collaborative act of avoidance. Yes. And oh, no and, and that's true too. It.
0: Yep. Don't ask, don't tell. I mean, my children who've discovered... My young adult children who have discovered it, you know, it's a don't ask, don't tell. They don't want to know what mom's doing because they're within the church. And so it's just too disturbing. It's that kind of thing. So it's a don't ask, don't tell. But then Landon's the opposite of me. He's made declarations and announcements and, and your situation's a little different, isn't it? Landon? (laughs) Yeah, but I I still come
1: back to avoidance uh, because whenever we get together, then, you know, it's always uncomfortable because we're all trying to avoid talking about, you know, the elephant in the room, it seems like, and you never feel authentic. You feel like you're, you're just talking to be nice, not not to find out about each other yeah
2: and there's a level of avoidance because every family has emotional truths that no one can perfectly yeah. and fully address it just doesn't isn't in us but you can get closer to it and i'd say on religious matters my family went through an evolution and a development that i'm very proud of and that we can talk about anything directly although at times it's uncomfortable there's still emotional things we don't talk about and we're, in that sense you see it in every family but i i they're mm-hmm. they're so tied up and i agree you know you 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 have to identify the things that matter to you the most in life and then confront those things because, you know, one of the late in my dad's life, we were having Sunday dinner. So, again, I'm visiting Salt Lake and kind of living there at the time for reasons. And my mom and dad are both there. And my mom's sister is there. And she's a very straight, you know, toe the line practicing woman. And my brother Tim and his wife are there, just about to go on their mission. They're there or at least I can't remember if it's that soon, but they're soon to be mission presidents. And then I'm there. And my dad, for some reason, gets fixated on this thing that in in church that day at testimony meeting, one of his friends came up to him afterwards and started talking to him about his children. My dad got on this thing about how, oh, and a couple of my sons are leaving. They're, they're betraying us. They're leaving the church. They're leaving the fold. I can't, don't know what to bring them back. They won't listen. They're just... And his friends said things that got fueled. And so somehow my dad, again, I'm saying this because I think the science supports it. He's, this is something that he wouldn't have processed this way 20 years younger. He goes home. He's fixated on it. He starts talking to me about it. Before dinner, we drop it. We have dinner. We're all sitting at the table. My dad at the end, my Aunt Suzanne, my brother and, and his wife, all practicing warms, my mom over here and me. And he can't stop talking about how I am just, you know, letting the family down. I'm just, I'm, I'm betraying everything. What's he gonna do? I'm leaving the church. I'm like the Korahor, whatever. He's going on and on about this, and I kind of understand why Saint now, but him doing that in a public way like that, everyone, we were all dead silent.
0: Yeah. What can it's you the say? Most
2: embarrassing. Even the. And practicing Mormons felt terrible for me because he went off for half an hour on me. And afterwards, I just, I went around and I said to my mom, I said, dad's never, ever, ever done that to me before. I feel like he's sold me out in a way that would never have happened 10 years ago. And I'm, I'm hurt in a way that I've never been hurt by him. But anyway, I felt really wounded for about a week. And then when my sister came to town, she's a great facilitator. We went back, I told her about it. We went and sat down and talked to him about it and confronted him. And A. He couldn't remember half of it
0: Oh, yeah.
2: He, to the question of how did you feel how did you feel he could never give an answer because he doesn't know how to talk about his feelings and he just kept saying no no well jeff was saying this and allison kept saying but dad how did you feel when jeff said that how did you feel <laughs> couldn't answer emotionally well i just you know it was important because i said dad you really hurt me i don't know why you said that you embarrassed and humiliated me in front of people you wouldn't let it go and you just kept beating on me and beating on me and no one said a word and you know it was deadly silent did not you get it well his full 86 year old diminished capacity was on full display he didn't remember yes. half of it. he was trying to reason and alice and i just realized okay this isn't one as my therapist has said to me certain problems once you hit a certain age or they hit a certain age you don't try and solve them because they can't you let it go you 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 accept that that dissonance exists, and you just make peace with what's possible. And he couldn't, and so you know. But that that is a really outlier of a moment in my life. Wow, I'd never had that happen to me before, and it was really painful. Yeah. So. That, you no, know, that that, kind of was so. And I think. That-
0: no it isn't i think i probably in your dad's mind you know that's something that maybe rose to the surface that had never for him before like you know because i i see that with my own dad that just things that weren't weren't there on the surface before now for some reason they are and and you don't know if that's really them or what they really think you're not sure so i give well, the benefit of the doubt <laughs> i give the
2: benefit of the doubt to the younger more full-minded person and and yes. i think you know again when you're under the the pressures that age put on you the world narrows yes. you re- your childhood yes. and you yep. hang on to things and what, that means you reduce things you narrow you make them black right. and white you don't complexify you don't complex complicate you narrow and yep. i think at that point what my dad was basically saying is i'm terrified even though he was talking about, about no testimony leaving the church what's going on my sons are abandoning us what he was really saying is i am terrified i won't ever see him again yes and i die yep
0: yeah.
2: and, <laughs> and i get that i, I hear that yep so
0: Yep. All, Mormonism stays with you for your entire life, right? <laughs> I think yeah. about my grandfather who had very diminished capacity at the very end about a similar age. And pretty much the only thing left in his head that he would say to us, and I've said this before is, and this comes from years of presiding, um, you know, we'd say, bye, grandpa. And he'd go, make sure that you put away the chairs and tables in the cultural hall. And let's make sure that we sweep the floor. I mean, he was just, that was what was in his head. That's what he was, you know, years of presiding over meetings and activities. And he would say that to us as we left, you know, which to me was, it was really sad. It's like, that's what's left there. You know, just this, this presiding administrator in the church telling us to put the chairs and tables back and make the room nice for the mm-hmm. next meeting and
2: you hit it on the head. I mean, yeah. When, we did, when we, we did my dad's funeral, I I stood there and with the iPad bringing all my siblings in. My mom and I, and I guess Matt had arrived. We we put things into the coffin by their request. There wasn't a there wasn't a Bible, there wasn't a scripture, there wasn't a <laughs> Jesus saves us all. There was a Satan's Cardinals baseball hat oh. that he had with Greg. There was a Indian guide's Necklace he had when we were little kids with us. It was a Boy Scout thing he did with us. There was a thing I got with him when I took him to Antarctica. There was a anti-racist postcard. There was nothing gospel or doctrinal put in his coffin right. with him. I'm not saying he didn't believe those things. I'm saying these were the things that bound us, right. not not preaching about the church doctrine. It was the experiences we shared. And <clears throat> but the funeral was held in the framework of a Mormon bishop presiding. Yes. That yeah. stuff. yeah, and by the end, I felt like I was in foreign territory. I was in somebody else's house yeah. having our family funeral.
0: Yeah. So yeah, that's a whole nother topic too. Yeah, that is. And when your family member wants that, you have to go along with it, but you certainly feel very disconnected and you feel like it's not really even about the person. So and and now Lena and I always talk about, about this like now how do we get our, you know, my children, his children to? throw the kind of funeral we want. you know. <laughs> I guess, you know, and then you think, well, that put your children at odds. You know, I have some in some out, you know, will they then be at odds over that it's even end of life, even after life, you know, there's these gotta, components that still you're still going to butt yeah. heads over. <laughs> I know I keep saying to my, my, I have one son that's out. I keep saying, do not let anyone put me in temple clothes. That is not what I, you know, but then I say, what a terrible position to put him in because then my other sons may say, no, I know that now mom understands now she's somewhere, you know, so I, you know, and and post-Mormons do talk about this, you know, do you write this down? Do you make sort of a living will about absolute wishes But you know, there's no guarantee and you just put your kids at odds against each other. So again, we're still concerned in death, even after life. So I don't know. know, It's funny,
2: no (laughs) one in our family, my, my mom now included, who's 87. Has written out specific wishes for their funeral, but my dad had done it years and years before. He knew exactly what he wanted, and he wanted this song and this thing. But what he wanted mostly was for his each child to speak without limited time and to say whatever they needed to say. Wow! And he got he got it because you heard a whole wide spectrum on the church in that funeral, and he wanted his pallbearers to be his female grandchildren.
0: So, wow! So- your dad which, which was did, very progressive. That's amazing.
2: He had, he had, he was, he called women assistants as a mission president in Ecuador. <clears throat> and anyway, but, but and there weren't all female pallbearers because of COVID, but there were at least a couple. Oh,
0: at least no a couple.
2: But, wow. but and anyway, he could be there. My
0: point is, <laughs> That's he amazing. knew,
2: he knew in planning his funeral, he knew exactly what was going to happen. Right. We were at the church for decades, he knew exactly what that was going right. to be like. And so he wasn't doing it thinking it was going to make us conform. He he wanted to say, here they are. This is who they are. And this is what my family is. And I'm not hiding it. You just heard them. That's their take on the world, right? Wow. So it was pretty interesting.
0: That's amazing. Gosh, your family. I think we could listen to stories. Don't you think, Landon, of his family forever? You need to write a book. You need to make another documentary. You need to do all of this. So my goodness. Well, I think we're up against, uh, boy, I don't even know what time it is. I've just been riveted and fascinated this whole time. But I still feel like we now we need to have Jeff on again because now I have yeah, even story. more questions. I know. This is just incredible. It's it's just amazing. And, and I hope our viewers and listeners just got even a small sense of who Jeff is and, and the experiences that he's had and the lives that he has intersected with. I mean, I don't even think we scratched the surface on that. But especially your stories of the BYU years, just absolutely fascinating. And I'm, I'm so excited that you're going to do some kind of treatment of Eugene England's life. So if our viewers and listeners have not ever become acquainted with Eugene England, just just jump online. There's so many wonderful things that he's written and so many things written about him. And he's just, you know, we spend our whole life in the church hearing about, like you said, Bruce R. McConkie or the apostles or that, you know, but there are these incredible thought leaders that we're in you know, or sort of adjacent, um, who really shaped things and shaped a lot of us who are now older and, and trying to make a difference, trying to to shape our own things now. So, and, and it all directly goes back to to that, I think, the people that you come in contact with. So, Landon, do you have any final thoughts or any final thoughts from Jeff or we'll say goodbye for the day? I don't want to go.
1: <laughs> I, I just love I
0: don't that. want to. It was so good.
1: I love Jeff, uh, your teaching and, and the <laughs> Uh, the the example you just gave, you know, as as you were speaking, I was sitting there thinking, you know, as you said, your job was to empower your students and not to make them like you. And I, boy, just that, you know, the church, I mean, you didn't make them wear blue shirts and tell them that they shouldn't get married like you and that they, you know, and just sit and tell them everything that you had done in your life. And, and we see that in the church, you know, you got to dress like this, you got to speak like this, you've got to act like this, you've got to fit this mold. And, how beautiful it is to see someone who says, "I want to empower you to be the best you you can be, not the best me that you can be."
2: Yeah. Well, my students—they may have blue hair, but they don't wear blue shirts. Blue <laughs>
0: <students first. laughs> the, the, and blue hair is awesome.
2: <laughs> blue hair is awesome. I'm the first to say. It. I will just end by saying three short things. One, first of all, my apologies. I realize looking at myself, I look like the jet lag person that I am. I look like. Oh, my- you. do not anyway I just got here yesterday and I'm extremely tired number two you know my whole life has been about intellectual pursuits and I'm a very intellectual person by nature and whatever but I will say late in my life on the one hand I think you have to intellectually explore yourself and be honest about it I I agree that the the unexamined life is not really worth living you have to think about and confront things But I also agree that in the end, you know, intellectual structures are for the mind, but only unity will satisfy the heart. And that's where I think the answer really isn't, you're not going to persuade people to anything. You have to do it through connecting with them. And so in that sense, I still am very much the Mormon I was when I was five years old, where my answer is to try and find a way to connect with people and unite with them. Because there's no end to the intellectual dissonance you can find. There's no end to it. So be kind, be respectful, and when there's injustice, stand up and say, I will not stand for it, which is where I stand with the church right now. So,
0: That's it. And I think a lot of people have arrived at that anymore. We will not stand for it. So, well beautiful words from a beautiful person. I know that our viewers and listeners absolutely are going to love this podcast. I can't wait to get this out to everybody. And so we'll just say thank you again to Jeff and, and thanks to my co host Landon. Uh, make sure that you like and subscribe to Mormonish. And if you'd like to be notified when our new episodes come out, you can hit that little notification bell and it'll let you know right away. And we actually did recently figure out how to accept donations. We had some people ask, they they have um, indicated that they might like to support uh, our efforts here on Mormonish. And if you'd like to, we have links to PayPal or Venmo in our show notes. So we just appreciate all of our listeners and viewers so much. And uh, we love to hear from you what you think. Please comment. Please you know, let us know. We'll get comments to Jeff if you want to you know, interact with him. He had so many wonderful things to say that I know resonated in so many different ways um, with all of us, wherever we're at. So thank you again, everybody. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Landon. And we'll say goodbye for now from Mormonish. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Landon. Thank you, Rebecca.
0: Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.